0: Greetings and salutations, proud listener to this, the podcast which presents to you the finest in movies. I am one of your hosts, Steve Hester, and with me as always is...
1: Well, my name is Andrew Roger. I really shouldn't come on early and unexpected and hear disturbing conversations about harmonica between Steve (laughs) and his missus. Carson, how are you? There's something weird going on in your relationship, Steve.
0: Uh, yeah, I, um, context, I the I went to a local Lidl, which is kind of like Andy, uh, Aldi, sorry, not Alan, Andy, <laughs> um, and I uh, was just having a mooch round in the middle of little, which is a danger zone to anybody that wants to just get out of there without their wallet screaming in pain, and there was a uh, harmonica, which was only a pound, so I thought, oh, I'm going to have that, yeah, and then we was saying, oh, we should get the kids some, and Amanda was like, no. Nope. Nope. Well,
1: she used a bit stronger language. But yes, (laughs) I I, I can fully agree with that. A pound harmonica. Then again, Lidl's a great place if you uh, just happen to want a kayak while you're doing your shopping. Yeah,
0: you can get anything in Lidl. You can get groceries, you can get power tools, hairspray.
1: and hairspray. Yes, which kindly eases it into what's in the box from last week. Yes, and is. I knew that's what you were going for, but I stole it from you anyway. <laughs> yeah, because you're a swine. Yes, Philistine Philistine? philistine.
0: Oh yeah, she's a wonderful
1: woman. Um,
0: yes, Hairspray. Another 2007 movie.
1: Yeah, I'm starting to think that out of all of the films you've said no to, 2007 must have been your gap year for movies. Cause it must have been. You seem to have watched every movie from 2007. I <laughs> want to know what you were doing in 2007 where you missed out an entire <laughs> year of movies.
0: What was I doing in 2007? I was I was filming a few things for the BBC kids TV series Prank Patrol, um, <laughs> and uh, and and I started a new job. So yeah, that that was kind of like my 2007.
1: Obviously, not a lot of movies in that year.
0: No, no. Um, it does seem to be kind of like the movie nexus of quality. But anyway, yeah. uh, hairspray, New Line Cinema, uh, the home of the Hobbits and uh, Freddy Krueger. And it's a remake of the 1988 uh, movie of the same name. But as far as I can tell, it's also a movie version of the Broadway show. Yes, it's
1: a a weird amalgamation of the both of them.
0: Yeah, because I was looking at the end and uh, just seeing all the different credits. And uh, yeah, because you've got the original one, which was directed by John Waters, who has a nice little cameo at the beginning as a flasher. And uh, I think there's a few members of the, the original cast in that. Um, yes, they're, well. they're
1: scattered around in smaller roles.
0: Yeah. But it's a story of a young girl called Tracy Turnblad, who wants to be on this local uh, teen dance show that's on TV. And it's like one of those 1950s kind of dance things where the, everyone's dressed up in suits and the women have got all big puffball skirts and everyone looks lovely and, and blonde and then she comes along and she's short and she's fat but she's got a lot of attitude and she's also got a more of an open mind than a lot of the people that are around her and what starts off as just this story of a girl wanting to be more than what she is kind of turns into another story about the segregation that was going on in the US around about that time, and the second half of it in particular focused a lot on how uh, integration started to come through in the 60s and how people's viewpoints on race were starting to change as uh, black music and uh, culture was starting to become more and more part of the US as opposed to the way that it was all pushed down and squashed prior to that yes yeah. um, there's also themes in there to do with uh loving your body and basic body identity which still plagues a lot of people i mean i'm i'm overweight and i've been for years and it's something which still plays on my mind an awful lot so i could i could definitely go for that because i do sometimes look at roles and think you know i'd love to play that but i'm way too big way too heavy so oh, no no
1: no no th- in today's day and age, you can play absolutely anything you want to. This
0: is true, except for the harmonica.
1: Except for the harmonica, <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh,
0: so yeah, the, the film itself is, is quite a fun film, in spite of the rather heavy subject material. Tracy, throughout the whole film, for a part, is very, very upbeat. She's very, very positive, and it does become rather infectious as you're watching it, and you start to get caught up in her journey. And the other characters around her are all equally upbeat, even though some of them are are going through some pretty nasty stuff. One special mention has to go to John Travolta, who plays uh, Tracy's mum. And uh, it's not even the fact that he's in a fat suit that I couldn't take him seriously. It's the fact that his choice of accent sounded exactly like Dr. Evil.
1: (laughs) Well, it is a new line. <laughs> it was like,
0: oh, God, Tracy, I can't believe that you're doing that, okay? And it's like, what? were you channeling Mike Myers when you decided to what voice you were going to be pulling out of the bag for this? Now, I haven't <laughs> seen the original, so I don't know what voice Divine was doing for it, but, my God, could he not have changed that?
1: Yeah, he you, you probably could have. Uh, personally, I always thought that, out of the entire movie, John Travolta was the one who was too distracting. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, he is. I'm saying it nicely.
0: Even the chemistry that you've got between him and uh, Christopher Walken, who plays his <laughs> husband, it, it doesn't feel like there's anything really there. You know, there's no kind of like connection between the two of them, and they do have this big song and Nance number, but they, it still doesn't. None of that kind of it feels like gel. It, it doesn't gel.
1: Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm actually in agreement with you on that one, which is a shame because this is the only time before. Oh, Christopher Walken could have done so much more um for this role yeah. and I'm, I'm surprised that you know that didn't gel as much as it has but you know as you mentioned the first one uh which is a classic also uh was directed by John Waters this one was directed by Adam Shankman who's no stranger to his musicals because mm-hmm. he also did uh Rock of Ages after this right which is you either like it or you don't or uh, the Mandy Moore movie A Walk to Remember which most of us wish not to remember and uh cheaper by the dozen too, which oh really didn't need to go And um, the thing about hairspray it elevates adam shankman because you can finally forgive him for directing the pacifier <laughs> i've forgotten about that uh, everyone needed to forget about that yeah um and I think he does a great job. I think he did a great job with this. It really captured the um, the energy of the uh, theatrical run, and the older movie as well. As we mentioned, you know, there's mm-hmm. a nice little John Waters cameo there as the Flasher. You know, so it it does play a much of the facts. Like yes, we're not completely rewriting the rule book here. We are paying acknowledge- acknowledgement to the previous Hairspray movie, which I believe was done by Columbia. Yeah, uh, pass. Yes, I think it was. Um, And, you know, this movie did have, uh, at one time, the best opening weekend ever for a musical. Until a year later, when Mamma Mia came out.
0: Yeah, goddamn Mamma Mia. (laughs) Pierce Brosnan. Uh, um... This has an almost entirely original soundtrack. Yes. in terms of um, it being the music from the musical as opposed to with Mamma Mia, where it's all existing ABBA songs.
1: Exactly. And, and You Can't Stop the Beat is probably the best song in the entire movie. Yeah, I love that movie.
0: There's not much in the way of Earworms, though, except for Can't Stop the Beat. Because the yeah. rest of them, I think the, the opening song, uh, Good Morning Baltimore. Who, wants, who on earth wants to say good morning to Baltimore? As
1: What's... soon as I saw that, I was thinking of the opening song from South Park, of the Movie. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, Mark um was it Mark Hyman Mark Scheiman? Shaman? Shaman? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he works on South Park, of the Movie.
1: Oh does he? Yeah. That's probably why then. There was there was a, a bit of a throwback there. Uh I mean this movie the, the established stars are great. Um mm-hmm. I think Michelle Pfeiffer runs away with the adult's role. And I think uh James Marsden is perfectly cheesy in this movie. Oh yeah, he's he's loving it, isn't he? Oh, he, he, he was born for, for this kind of role. Um, but I think when it comes to, obviously, John Travolta's role, uh, Divine was better in the original. You can take my word on that until the movie is actually pulled out of the box. I mean, this movie is all about the youngsters. Yeah. Right? And they are the real stars of this movie. The youngsters like uh, Zac Efron, uh, Elijah Kelly, who played Mel Bould's daughter as well. Mm-hmm. Incredible uh, in this movie. As I watched it again... Uh, this past week because it is on Amazon Prime for those of you looking to watch a movie yes, that is, is camp fun to the extreme, <laughs> uh, but it has some great stuff in there. Um, th- this movie is all Nikki Blonsky, yeah, uh, who played it, which is a real tragedy in itself because this was her big, you know, standout doing the role that Ricky Lake did in the original. And then uh, she ended up getting arrested a year later for racial assault, and hasn't really worked in the business ever since.
0: Yeah, I, 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 caught a little bit of that. I didn't have time to actually look into what the case was, so I can't go. I can't comment on any of it. But uh, no, but it is a shame. A, yeah, if you're doing a movie like this, and then you end up getting caught for racial assault,
1: <laughs> yes, totally against the theme of the movie mm. you've just become famous for, and it.
0: I, it kind of goes against like the, the, the there is a transformation of uh Tracy's character cuz in the beginning she's got like a the colors that she wears she's got a very black hair and a white shirt and then throughout throughout it all you can see like the her hair starting to get more uh, more mixed colours going into it so by the end of it she's got black and white hair and black and white dress and it's and then the the, the themes of the, the racial segregation kind of get addressed and then there's the integration on the show at the end and, and everyone's dancing together and you think, yeah, oh, brilliant and then you
1: read that and you think, ah, oh, did you learn nothing? Yes I heard the casting directors of this movie were just like, yikes hmm. we, we dropped the ball on that one But for her part in it, she is great in this movie, and it is such a shame because it's part of a really great ensemble of characters Mm -hmm. uh, that are in this movie. I mean, the hair and makeup is just fabulous, and it just shows what an art they are in themselves. Wake Up Oscars. Yeah. As I mentioned before, Zac Efron's great. Queen Latifah is brilliant in it as well.
0: Yeah, she is.
1: And it just hits so many right buttons. And and to be honest, they, they make a lot of these type of musicals now. We've just had West Side Story. We had the complete debacle. It was cats prior to that. we had the greatest showman. The musical is alive and well, and I think this was at a time where it was after Moulin Rouge mm-hmm. Chicago. yeah um you know so so this kind of joins that pantheon of movies and I enjoyed. It. I actually thought it was a really really nice movie that you can just stick on and, and yeah yeah use it was. for two hours
0: it was it was it was it was a, it was it was pretty good fun. And uh, it's also the first time that you've had um, John Travolta, who was in Greece, and you had ah, Michelle Pfeiffer, Piper, who was in Greece too. too. So they were in it together. But you also have Michelle Pfeiffer and Christopher Walken, who were in uh, Batman Returns as well. So
1: you and had... Christopher Walken and John Travolta, who were in Pulp Fiction. Oh,
0: of course they were. Yeah. Yes. Yeah.
1: So there's a there's a lot of uh, mixing of uh, cast there from various productions. Quite quite an interesting link. Yeah. So your final thoughts on Hairspray?
0: Final thoughts on Hairspray. It's it's a cheesy and, and fun look at the attitudes of the uh, the tensions of the era. Uh, a lot of them are still going on today, but um but it's it's a fun film. Uh just uh don't expect to be humming much beyond Don't Stop the Beat uh when you've finished watching it.
1: Well, uh it's another winner of a week for what's in the box. So uh I guess there's two anniversaries to speak of this week.
2: We watch them again all of the time or we get them on
1: Prime for free. But we only know how old they are when we learn their anniversary. <sighs> yes. Uh, uh. Yeah. Uh, anniversary. Sorry, I went out and made a brew and came back. Um, <laughs> right anniversaries uh we have two for this week as mentioned
2: Ooh, okay.
1: um so uh, I, I kind of dipped into the special anniversary back this week and found two kind of interesting ones to speak of can you believe steve yes 40 oof, the big one 40 years ago this week was the release of a concert movie uh, that was released theatrically, and it was Richard Pryor live on the Sunset Strip.
0: Oh well, I haven't seen it, but yeah, this is one thing that you don't get anymore because he, he wasn't the only person to have these kind of live concerts go out. Because I think Annie Murphy did one as well, didn't he? Like
1: raw. yes, that was that was afterwards. Yeah, uh, spurned on by the success of Richard Pryor, who was absolutely huge in the day. This was, I believe, now this was his. First theatrical uh, concert movie and he had another one called Richard Pryor here and now that he did a couple of years later and this one has been classed as his most famous uh stand-up performance mm-hmm. so this was basically uh, like Eddie Murphy Raw was a huge sellout and box office success uh, theatrically as well eight years prior to that Richard Pryor did it with uh, live on the Sunset Strip eight years prior sorry six years prior and, We're saying uh, prior way too much. <laughs> no, prior years, the prior movie to do it was Richard Pryor, Live on the Sunset Strip, yeah. six years prior. Um, so it was directed by a man called Joe Layton, who I guess was more famous for two other things. He was a producer on Annie, mm-hmm. so no stranger to the stage. And he was also a producer on the Star Wars Holiday Special. <gasps> Oh, yes.
0: Yeah, that wonderful piece of entertainment, which is absolutely horrible, but still better than The Last Jedi.
1: (laughs) Exactly. Now, what people may not remember when they actually do watch this, uh, this was actually played off as one night, but it was actually filmed over two nights. And the main reason being because uh, on the first night, Richard Pryor actually lost his train of thought and forgot his material whilst they were filming. So he actually wrapped up the entire concert. The crowd was absolutely pissed, and he came back the next night and did it all again. What, did they have to pay twice? No. Completely different crowd.
0: Oh, I'd be so upset.
1: Yes. I would be. I, I think upset wasn't the right term for the crowd from night one, no, you know, so it was, uh, it was, it was pretty infamous back in the day.
0: I, I know that they do film things across multiple nights, but it's usually so that they can get like the best reaction to a joke. Something will land on one night and it won't land on another. Um, so I have seen them do multiple nights when they've been recording live stuff, but it's yeah. interesting that the the artist just completely forgets what it is that they're doing. <laughs>
1: yes and to be honest uh, I guess it paid off because this was uh, the most successful concert movie at the international box office Uh, domestically it has been beaten uh, Mm -hmm. by I think it was Eddie Murphy Raw and it might have been beaten by Kevin Hart since then Uh, but internationally this is the most successful concert movie
0: why don't they do these much anymore
1: I'm going to say Netflix Yeah, because that is the premiere home of stand up comedy now which is Amazing, really, before the days when Netflix was doing original movies, they were more known for doing their original stand-up comedy. That's where the kind of Netflix revolution started.
0: I would love to see more stuff like this and smaller films like this coming out in smaller cinemas, never mind the big multiplexes.
1: To be honest, I think you need to be an absolute megastar for that to work. Now, you don't see many actual concert movies come out, and when they are, they're kind of done in the vein of a documentary. Uh, to go along with it. It's a real shame because
0: sitting in a darkened room with a load of people listening to some comedy would be just brilliant.
1: Yeah, well that's why you have comedy clubs now. Yeah. But yes, four years ago this week, uh Richard Pryor Live at Sunset Strip was the number one movie at the box office.
0: Good choice. Good choice.
1: Okay. Well I thought it was an interesting one.
0: Yeah, definitely.
1: Um so we're going to move on uh move on by ten years and go to thirty. Mm-hmm. So can you believe Steve? Yeah. 30 years ago, this week, Cape Fear was released. There was a
0: production uh, that I saw in the Edinburgh Fringe, and it was a guy talking about uh, Robert Mitchum. Yes. And it was quite a funny show, actually. But he uh, he kept calling uh, Cape Fear the musical. <laughs> so th- there was, like, the original Cape Fear with Robert Mitchum, and then there was the one with Robert De Niro, and he kept calling it Cape Fear the musical. So that's I, I haven't actually seen it, apart from oh, right. all the scenes that were parodied in that, fantastic Simpsons episode. Um, oh,
1: yes. yes. Yeah. <laughs> I saw that again not so long ago. It's so good. That been episode. introduced to The Simpsons and he loves it. Even that episode was on, I even stayed to watch it. You know, for Martin Scorsese movie, and this does not appear on his Mount Rushmore of Martin Scorsese movies, but I, <clears throat> I kind of guess people have, you know, the whole Mount Rushmore thing. You pick your four top from anything, any person, any kind of movie, whatever. I mean, I believe Martin Scorsese's Mount Rushmore would be Taxi Driver,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: uh, Mean Streets, Goodfellas, and controversial as it may be, I'm going to say The Age of Innocence should be his fourth. Right. Right. And I think Cape Fear would be right alongside them if they had a fifth head on there, a nice uh, Max Cady head. Or if you've seen Fatal Instinct, it'll be Max Shady. No, I haven't. Oh, God. It was was a spoof of all these kind of things and they did a fantastic spoof of uh, Cape Fear with a character played by James Ramar uh, called Matt Shady. And it followed that kind of storyline where he was just stalking Armand Asante, who was the the lead. But the scene that I remember is in Cape Fear, there's a scene where um, Robert De Niro, like, Ties himself to the bottom of the car as as the family are like getting away from it all. Sorry,
0: uh, I'm just which has been Simpsons used in The Simpsons. Back.
1: Yeah. Yes, but in the Fatal Instinct version, it's a great shot of like when the family all got out of the car. James Ramar like gets from underneath, and as he walks away, his ass cheeks of his pants have been like completely disintegrated <laughs> from scratching <laughs> on the road, and it's one of the funniest sight gags I think I'd ever seen at the time. Because when I was watching Cape Fear I'm thinking, Oh my god, he's gonna be like getting loads of gravel and all sorts or cactuses and everything else in the case yeah. of Sideshow Barb, I guess. Uh the the scene that kind of stands out uh from Cape Fear is a scene between De Niro and a very young Juliette Lewis. Well, it, it was it was among her first films anyway. Um and this scene and I was speaking with Elizabeth J. Carlisle actually, and she told hi, me a while ago, hi Elizabeth. Um, she told me a long time ago this was one of her favorite scenes in any movie. And it was completely ad libbed as well. So they like having this kind of conversation. It's really sinister because he's, you know, stalking her family. Mm-hmm. And it, it's known as kind of like the seduction scene. But it, it's got to be seen to believe it, it, is, it is so palpable. Uh, And this is also a movie that paid homage to the original Cape Fear by having Robert Mitchum, uh, Martin Belsam, uh, who played a detective in the original, Robert Mitchum, who played Max Cady in the original, and Gregory Peck, who also played who Nick Nolte's character is. And this was Gregory Peck's final ever on-screen appearance. And it's just great to see, you know, these three characters in this scene together when it's all at court. Uh, it's it's something really special because I really love the Black and White original as well. This uh, originally was supposed to be a Steven Spielberg movie. Mm, really? Yes, which explains With why it's set up at Amblin. So yeah. it's a co-production between Amblin and Universal. Uh, so he was supposed to direct it and Martin Scorsese was supposed to direct Schindler's List. And apparently they had a meeting together and then realized they were both suited for the other's film. Yeah, so they swapped them over.
0: Oh yeah, definitely because I I know Spielberg can turn his hand to lots of stuff, um, as we've seen recently with West Side Story. Um, but yeah, he's definitely more suited to Schindler's List than this,
1: and wins Best Film and Best Director for Schindler's uh, well, List. Yeah, as well. yeah. You know, so and and it wasn't uh, a total loss for Scorsese because this was just an amazing movie. It really is. It's it's terrifying. It's probably De Niro's most terrifying on-screen role. It was also the the first R-rated movie for Amblin. They had never done a movie that was R-rated before this one. Mm. A bit of history there. And it owes a lot to Alfred Hitchcock. It is filmed in a very Alfred Hitchcock style that I personally love and I think is missing from movies a hell of a lot these days. On top of that, you get the uh, the infectious Bernard Herman score. And yes, I do have the Cape Fear theme as my ringtone for for one individual in particular, and no, I'm not saying who it is. <laughs> but as soon as that guy rings me, that I know who it is just from that ringtone. Um, you've got, uh, I think, Juliette Lewis was a major standout in a movie. Uh, De Niro, obviously. Uh, great support from Nick Nolte, Jessica Lange, and uh, Joe Don Baker,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, when he's not being two different characters in a Bond movie. Uh, it's superbly edited, very noticeably, superbly edited. And it mixes very well with the cinematography, which surprisingly was done by Freddie Francis. Now, if you don't know who Freddie Francis is, back in the 60s and 70s, he was a director of photography on a lot of classic horror movies. Well, I say classic, a lot of them were kind of cheesy. But you can expect those like hammer horror style movies and things like that.
0: Yeah, well, if you're doing something like a, a taut thriller like this, then those kind of angles will come in handy.
1: Oh, but, but on yeah. this, it works so well. And this movie is in the box. You are going to get to see it at some point uh, down the line when it get pulled out.
0: Yeah, I do get the feeling, though, that because of... It's, it's happened with a number of movies, and you do watch them and you appreciate them for what they are, but there's a number of films which have kind of been ruined by parody. And I get the feeling that when this gets pulled out, all I will be able to think of is Sideshow Bob.
1: But you said that about Brokeback Mountain. Yeah, that's true. I, I was you, still
0: I was still thinking about the jokes that I saw in
1: Family Guy. Well, that, that's the problem. But to be honest, you, you've kind of got to separate yourself from yes. the parody of it. And you've really got to just watch it for what it is. And, and I, I've always found there's been plenty of movies that I have seen um, that have parodied well-known movies before I've actually seen the movie, it was parodying. Uh, Brokeback Mountain was one for me as well. I think I saw the scary movie 4 before I saw Brokeback Mountain, which when I look back on myself now, it's like, that's, Jesus Christ, that's just... Yeah, that's, that's a sad thing to really consider. Um, my taste in movies has changed a lot, even though it was David who directed that. And I love David to bits. Hi, David. But... Uh, Brokeback Mountain on its own. It was a movie that just. It, it was.
0: It was. It was really, really good. I'm glad that you got me to watch that one.
1: You know, it's still films that are parodied and all that now that I still haven't seen. I've still not seen The Sound of Music to this day. Me neither. <laughs> exactly. You know, so there's that. I don't think I've actually watched Gone with the Wind to this day either. Me neither. But uh, there'll be ones as soon as they're pulled out of the box, I'll be watching them as well. I've not seen Chitty Chitty Bang Bang either. Oh, I've seen that. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't too long ago, but I have seen it. But yes, anyway, Cape Fear is 30 years old, brilliant movie, uh, still holds up. It's probably one of De Niro's most underappreciated performances. You know, we all get his um, his kind of gangster stuff and Travis Bickle, obviously. But this was De Niro taking it to a terrifying level. And he's, he, I'd class him as one of the best horror characters, even though they didn't want to class him well, Cape Fear was a horror movie, in the same way they didn't want to class Silence of the Lambs as a horror movie. Mm. They're still classed as horror icons. It's a yeah. very weird dynamic to have.
0: No, I agree. Um, although, realistically, Silence of the Lambs was never about Hannibal Lecter. He was just a tertiary character. He was all about Buffalo Bill. But uh, he just stole it. To be to be honest, you can't really, can't really blame them for uh, for giving him the, the gong for that one. Because, by God, it's bloody terrifying.
1: Yes. Uh, And just think, Jerry Levine or Ted Levine, whoever it was, one of the Levines. Ted Levine, is it Ted Levine? Ted Levine, yeah, yeah. And all he did was like took his meat between his legs and didn't even walk home with the gong. I know, but uh, he's he's now got an amazing meme out there saying uh, the worst Bon Jovi concert ever. (laughs) I've not seen that one. (laughs) Haven't you seen that? I'll send it. I'll send send it to you later. It's hilarious. Uh, Okay, well, that is the anniversaries for this week. Yes. Two
0: very good choices, I will say, even though I've not seen either of them, but two very good ones.
1: You can't get all of them in one go. Yeah. I'll be very amazed if we actually get an anniversary one where you have seen all of the movies. They're certainly interesting choices, though. Well, sure, I guess it's that part of the show where we let our guest in. Yes. Well, when I find guests to come onto the show, I always love to bring talent who are true journeymen and women in this industry with a lot of experience and history to tell. Uh, today's guest joins the rich lineage of the guests that we've had on since we started, not only as one of the most gifted character actors of the last 30 years, but also one of the most dependable actors in TV and film. Known as a series regular on such hit shows as The Shield, playing Steve Billings, Homeland in the role of Virgil Piotrowski, i am going to get that name right, Bosch as Detective Brad Conniff, and of course, his much-loved role as Detective Ray Vecchio over two seasons of the ridiculously and eternally popular Due South series. He is also a writer and director, a father, a New Jersey native, and now he joins the Pottywood guest list. Joining us from his trip to Los Angeles, where it's sunny. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's our pleasure to welcome David Marciano. Good morning, David.
3: Ah, good morning, good morning, gentlemen.
1: Hi, well, thank you very much for
0: joining us on this, what I'm presuming to be a fine Los Angeles day. Yes, it's
3: perfect outside.
0: Yeah, not jealous because of the massive rain clouds that we've had here at all. No, not in the slightest. (laughs) There's plenty plenty of rain going.
3: Yeah, well, you know what, that's been going on for centuries now, hasn't it? Yeah. (laughs) You think you guys would have accepted it, you think you would have accepted it by now, but no, no, it still bugs you, doesn't it?
1: it does we we get more rain than seattle it's uh it's incredible
3: yeah wow wow my daughter lives in seattle
1: does she
0: yeah yeah i've always actually kind of fancied visiting
3: yeah i went up there and visited her when i was in vancouver recently uh shooting the good doctor i took a the weekend and i um i drove down there to spend some time with her it's uh it's a nice city
1: yeah looks it Yeah, yeah well, basically, I guess we've kind of got to start really early uh, with you, David. I uh, understand you're growing up here as you were growing up in Newark, which is one of the many airports i had been redirected to uh, many a time. And uh, you kind of grew up there, I understand, when it was uh, in the grip of violent crime that was rife.
3: Yes, uh, we had the race riots of 1968 uh, that you saw uh, happening across America during the civil rights movement. And, you know, the... 70s, there was some corruption uh, going on politically, and you saw the movie Goodfellas? Yeah. And you saw the movie Saturday Night Fever? Yes. Yeah. Okay, that was my neighborhood in the 70s. All right. Now, if you saw the... Now, there's a, there's a smaller movie that, uh, that depicts the era in which I grew up in. Did you see The Pope of Greenwich Village?
1: Oh, yeah, with um, the Mickey Rourke movie.
3: Yes, Mickey Rourke and Eric Roberts. If you remember... Eric Roberts' character, that's who I was in my neighborhood. So I was either going to end up scapegoat dead or losing my thumbs. So at the age of 18, I got the hell out of there and went to college in the, the city of Boston, Massachusetts.
0: Yeah, because you, you had quite a troubled youth from what I can hear.
3: Well, you know they, they, you know, they write the word troubled, but it's not true. I was having a good time. I, I didn't find it troubling at all.
0: <laughs> it's troubling for other people. But yes, yes, yeah.
3: yeah, yeah, they may have found it troubling, but I was, you know, <laughs> I was living the life of a wannabe wise guy.
1: Well, what was it that was uh, the kind of turning point for you to uh, make uh, the change and suddenly focus on your future?
3: There was, um, I'm not going to be able to use his real name, but there was um, the son of the local, uh, what would you call him, Capo? Yeah. I uh, got into some um, kind of a deal, a nefarious deal with uh, his son's girlfriend, and the deal was in my favor, not hers, and he didn't like the way that went down, so uh, he came looking for me, and if he found me, it was going to not go in my favor so that was one of the that's when I realized that you know what I'm not really good at this wise guy stuff, so that was one sort of incident that uh, turned on a little light switch for me and when i went to the drama studio of london uh, at berkeley two schools one in london
1: mm-hmm. one
3: in berkeley california the one in berkeley california is now defunct it was started by a man, uh, by a man by the name of peter layton um sort of hit a bottom at that school in terms of my my behavior Uh, in the final evaluation, they said, uh, look, two things have to happen here in order for, uh, you to make it in that, in this business. And they said, one is quit drinking and doing drugs. And the other one is go to psychotherapy. So I I got rid of one of the two.
0: Okay. (laughs) Well, you weren't always an actor and uh, when you were studying, you apparently were studying also uh, biomedicine, economics and accounting. Mm. Now that's quite a fair distance away from acting. So was this something that you thought, okay, I better do this because it's expected of me, but then you've got the artistic cycle in your way? Or what was it that made you just approach just these two diverse areas?
3: When I took my SATs, which are college boards, university boards, they give you something else called the uh, aptitude test, the APT Mm, test. I believe you can still take it online. Uh, It's 100 random questions, no right or wrong answers, multiple choice results come out in three professions. So the professions were mathematician, architect, and actor. So I go in to see my guidance counselor, and he says, first of all, this is the oddest grouping of professions I've seen. (laughs) And I... It makes zero sense. I said, Yeah, well, my life doesn't make much sense at this point either. I said, He said, uh, I understand mathematician because you get all A's in math. He goes, I understand architect because the third one, he didn't tell me what the third one was right away. He said, The third one's the creative. He said, So to be an architect, you have to have a creative vision, but you also have to understand angles and geometry. But what can you tell me about this acting thing? And I said, I don't know. He said, I can see by your transcripts you haven't taken any drama classes. I said, no. Have you been in any of the plays here at the school? I said, no. He says, do you know anybody in the drama department? I said, yeah. There's this one guy, Tom. And let me tell you something. Tom is suspect. I don't know, what, I don't know what's wrong with Tom, but let me tell you something. I'm staying away from that cat. And uh, we just blew it off. You're really good at math, he said. And uh, Northeastern has a really good engineering program. I said, okay. He goes, um, but there's all different types of engineering. I said, okay. He says, uh, how do you like chemistry? I said, I hate chemistry. He says, okay, so forget about chemical engineering. <laughs> well, you know, architects have to deal with the environment. He says, there's something called civil engineering. I said, ah yeah, whatever. I don't know. It doesn't sound too appealing to me. He said, uh, what do you know about electricity? I said, you see that light switch? He said, Okay. <laughs> Forget that. <laughs> that's how you turn the shit on, and that's how you turn the shit off. All right. Stop asking me stupid questions. I don't know. How these questions are are inane. What do I know about electricity? About as much as you know about what you're doing with the rest of my career, fella. All right. So he says, "All right, this is this is going to sound weird." I said, uh-huh. "Gonna." He said, uh, is there a part of you that wants to help people? And I didn't expect that question, you know, and I sat back, thought about it for a minute, and I said, yeah, there's a part of me that wants to help people, sure. He says, well, there's this new field of engineering. Uh, It's called biomedical engineering. So now my brain starts going, right? Biomedical engineering, bi, bionic. I said, what do you mean, like the the bionic man, like artificial limbs and shit? And he says to me, well... (laughs) Because that's part of it. He says, but you know all those machines in the hospital? I said, yeah. He says, they're designed by biomedical engineers. I said, wow, that's pretty cool. I said, what's the starting salary? He says, it's the highest of all the engineering programs. I said, sign me up. Now, after my freshman year, I had a 1.6 out of four possible points. I had uh, amassed only 24 of a possible 48 credits. I was on academic probation, and I was on the dean's list.
2: Mm-hmm. The, dean
3: has, the dean has two lists. So one day, I'm coming home from school, and the TA says to me, the dean would like to see you in his office tomorrow at 10 a.m. I said, I'm busy tomorrow. He goes, no, no, no. <laughs> he goes, no, no, the dean wants to see you in his office at 10 a.m. I said, I'll be sleeping at 10 a.m. He says, you don't understand. The dean wants to see you. So I go in to see the dean. He says, how's it going? I said, I'm having the time of my life. He says, yeah, I can tell. He says, you've taken the term, don't let college get in the way of your education to a whole nother level. (laughs) He says, now here's what we're going to do. You have to get a 3.0 or better next semester when you come back after the summer, or I'm going to kick your ass out of here. He says, there's people on the wait, wait list who were dying to take your spot says, your mother spending good money to send you here, and it doesn't look like you want to be here. I said, no, I want to be here. I'm just having a hard time balancing the socialization, you know, the sex, the drugs, and the rock and roll with actually doing some work around here. He said, you got one semester to get it right, or you're out of here. And so when I went back, I buckled down. I tried economics. I tried accounting, I got all A's, but I really didn't like it. And then I was about to quit college and my mother said, remember that aptitude test you took? She says, why don't you take an acting class? And that's next semester I took an acting class and I knew what I wanted to do for the rest of my life.
0: So it was just like that.
3: In a roundabout way, yeah. I mean, we never know how we're getting where we're going, but um, if you stay open to the signs and you listen, eventually you get to where the universe wants you to be. The majority of us just, our egos refuse to listen to the signs or hear the signs. You know, there it was, you know, acting was the third profession on the list.
1: Well, from there, as you mentioned, you head to the drama studio in London and then you move out to California and you're doing the drama studio there in Berkeley. And as I understand it, uh, you're working as a bartender at the same time. Yes. So uh, how how was that balance? Uh, A lot of people we've had, uh, actors that have come on, that were doing uh, small-time jobs while they were taking uh, acting classes and Mm -hmm. you know working their way up to auditions and things like that we've had a lot of actors who said you know the the real struggle of it for some people it really drives and some people it demotivates them
3: no you know i was pretty driven it was just another means for me to put gas in the car and put food on the table pay the rent until until something was going to pop
0: okay well speaking of something popping uh first role that we can find at least, is uh, a punk in The Bold and the Beautiful. <laughs> Do you want to tell yeah. us about that?
3: Okay, so a guy that I met at the drama studio, this guy Doug Steindorf, he was in L.A. about six months before me. And I came down to L.A. and we were hanging out. And he said, listen, I got an audition for The Bold and the Beautiful. Why don't you come with me? At least you'll, you know, you'll meet the casting director. I said, okay. So I went with him and we're sitting in the waiting room. And the casting director comes out and he says, Oh, who do we have here? I go, Ah, you know, Dave Marciano, the Doug's my best buddy, Da da, blah da, da, blah blah. He goes, You're an actor? I said, Yeah. He says, Well, we're looking for thug number one and thug number two. Why don't you come and audition for thug number two? I said, Okay. And we both got the part. And he was thug number one, I was thug number two, or punk as they say.
2: Yeah.
3: I you know, the best things that happened to me and my life is when I'm just being of service, right? He needed a ride to the audition. I gave him a ride to the audition. I ended up getting my first job on television.
1: Obviously from there, the first real big break he got was on the Ken World series Wise Guy. Yes, yes, yes. Which is uh, quite a cool classic nowadays.
3: Yes, Wise Guy was a a special show. It was unique at the time because um, they were doing arcs, bad guy arcs. You know, taking seven or thirteen episodes and hiring somebody of some notoriety to play that bad guy. And the first one was Ray Sharkey and then after that, I believe it was Kevin Spacey. Um, and I believe at one point they actually hired Jerry Lewis uh, yes. to be to be one of the main bad guys.
0: Yeah, similar stuff has happened since because you've had things like uh, Dexter now, where you've got the 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 villain of the series. So you had things like um, John Lithgow coming in and. Um johnny lee miller and so on and so forth so but yeah at the time that was pretty new approach
3: no 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 it was and um you know the way i got that was um jonathan banks who played um
0: oh uh, mike ermantrout in breaking bad yeah
3: yeah 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 but his one of his early roles was uh he played the fbi agent that uh ken wall's character vinnie terranova reported to yeah and jonathan and i were in acting class one day, Jonathan called me up and he said, "Hey, Dave, I'm in Vancouver, uh, getting ready to start shooting this new series for CBS called Wise Guy." And I just read the first script, and there's a part in it that I think you're, you know, you'd be very good at. And I told the producers about you. Uh, his name is Steve Cronish, and uh, here's his phone number. Call him up, and they're going to gonna set up a meeting. And that's how I ended up um, stepping into that role was through Jonathan.
0: Going from there, you built a name through appearances in shows such as China Beach and Superboy so how did they come about
3: I'm sorry did you say Superboy
0: Superboy yeah
3: oh no I wasn't in that
0: no in that oh, case we've IMDb got IMDB our...
1: has lied again yes
3: <laughs> no I was in that I just won't admit it oh okay
0: because <laughs> we had we had a moment the other week with one of our guests and we were going through the list of things oh yeah and you're in this and he was like no I wasn't in that and it was a completely different person but it was on their no. IMDB yeah
3: no, there's always that one role that you go, I, I, don't, I, I didn't want to take the role. Mm. I did not want to take the role of Hugo Stone, I believe his name was. It was December, and I had made enough money that year, and they offered me this role. And I was like, okay, I read it, and it was really like whatever. And, but I had to wear the Superman suit, the Superboy suit. Mm. And I said to my manager at the time, Wayne Rice, I said, all right, I'll do it because they offered it to me. I said, but I don't want to wear the suit. And he says, you got to wear the suit. I said, I don't want to wear the suit. Anyway, he talked me into doing it. And uh, you know, it's one of those roles that my colleagues mock me about, You know, every, any chance they can get.
1: Not many people can say they've worn the Superman suit, but there's definitely not many people who can say they've worn the Superboy suit.
3: <laughs> That's, you're right, you're right. And I, I have to start taking pride in that role.
1: From there, um, you're starting to branch into movies as well as TV, and there was one I, I came across called Hellbent, mm-hmm. uh, in which you played a character called Mister Tannis, mm-hmm. and from a little bit of trivia that I have looked into, apparently, uh, you were cast in that role immediately following your audition. Is that right?
3: Uh, yeah, on on the exact same day. So this was out of the same acting class. Okay, this was before Wise Guy, uh, so. It was a scene study class taught by Gordon Hunt, uh, Helen Hunt's father, who, who I believe has passed since. Uh, and I'm in class, and I can i believe the guy's, the gentleman's name might have been Steve Devorkin. He was a producer on this movie, Hellbent, and he said, um, "A friend of mine's directing this movie called Hellbent, and uh, the, the, the actor that they had playing the devil." Wasn't working out, and they just fired him. And I, I told the director that you'd be, you, you know, that you'd be great in this role. And we got to drive downtown right away after class. I said, okay. So we drive downtown. I do the audition, and after the audition, he says, uh, okay, great, um, go to wardrobe. We're gonna suit you up, and uh, we're gonna start shooting in about an hour. <laughs> <laughs> I said, we're gonna do what? I said I haven't even worked on. I haven't read the script. I haven't. He goes, you're going to be great. Don't worry about it. You're going to be great. And that's how I ended up getting that job.
0: God, that must be a bit nerve-wracking, though, to arrive on set and then just to be told, "Yeah, you're on in a few minutes." Yeah. How did yeah. you how did you prepare for that then? Did you just with the cue cards involved, or was it just like, "No, no, no. I just need to really focus here."
3: Well, that's what I said to him. I said, "You know, I'm. I'm you know, it takes me a while. I like to spend some time with the words." You know, he said, don't worry, if we have to shoot it line by line, we'll shoot it line by line, he said. And we didn't have to. Yeah.
0: That wasn't the only thing that you were doing around about that time. Uh, You were also doing a TV movie called Kiss Shot with Whoopi Goldberg, not that long after. Yes. Yeah.
3: What a great lady. We had a great time. Um, Yeah, I was playing the antagonist, Mm -hmm. uh, Rick. I forget his last name. It was a pool shark named Rick. Dennis Franz was also in that.
2: Oh, brilliant.
3: Yeah. yeah, yeah. That was the first time I met Dennis. And uh, yeah, we got on great. Everybody got on great. It was quite a couple of weeks. It was a great experience.
1: In uh, 1988 and 1989 period, things were mm-hmm. really starting to shift for you. And uh, as we had from Tommy's episode, he says uh, mm-hmm. that you both went along around for an audition for Lethal Weapon 2. To go into the room together, and mm-hmm. uh, just started uh, kind of goofing around, and Richard Donna, I guess, kind of fell in love with the two of you.
3: Yeah, that was um, that was one of those experiences that you know you, you take a risk, right? You, and you don't know how it's going to be received. So my audition was at twelve o'clock, and I got there a little early, and Dick was taking his time, you know, reading everybody. So I think I think I'd been there two hours. And I was sort of done waiting, and because I had just, I forget the pilot. I was up for this pilot, and I didn't get the role. And I found that out the day before the Lethal Weapon 2 auditions. I was kind of down. And uh, Tommy comes through the door. (laughs) And that weekend, okay, that weekend we were at an art opening, and the artist's name was Aldo. This is on Melrose (laughs) Avenue. Yeah. Yes. This is, this is on Melrose Avenue, and there's about 200 people in the room, but no Aldo. Tommy, in about two minutes, I said, Go to the front door and just burst through the front door, and I'm going to turn and I'm going to yell, Aldo, like you're the artist. And so I do it. Tommy comes through, and I go, Aldo! And everybody <laughs> looks to see it's the artist, and it's not. It's Tommy. So every half hour, we just did that. <laughs> every half hour. <laughs> Tommy would go through the door, and i yell, Aldo! And everybody would look around and go, ah, f- you guys. F- you guys. <laughs> so, so Tommy comes through the door at Warner Brothers, and he sees me, and he goes, Aldo! And I go, not today, not today. He goes, Aldo? I said, no, listen, man, no Aldo, okay? Um, you know, it's f***ing hot. I'm here two hours, you know, I, I'm thinking about going home. He goes, you're not going home. This is Lethal Weapon 2. This is Dick Donner. Come on, man. You want to be in this movie or not? And I said, I really don't care at this point, Tommy. I said, I'll tell you what, the only way I'm going in that room, the only way I'm staying and going in that room is if we go in together. So, uh, Marion Darty's assistant at that time was Gail Levin. And Gail comes out and I said, to. Gail, this is a situation. We're wondering if uh, it's possible that Dick would see us together. She goes, it's a little unorthodox. We've never done that before, but we don't have to bump anybody because, David, your audition's at 12. Tommy's at 12.15. So uh, let me ask. And Dick said, sure, have him come in. You know, we just f***ed off, man. We just, you know, fooled around. We were heckle and jekyll. And, you know, Dick turns to Marion Darty. He goes, these guys are great. He says, "Okay." Uh, if we cast these two guys, we, and we probably are, guys, we're probably going to cast you guys. You guys are awesome. He says, uh, We got to make the other two cops older. And Marion says, Okay, and boom, we're out the door thinking we're in Lethal Weapon too And then about two weeks later, we get a phone call that they only wanted to hire one of us. And um, the other actors said, No. Um, they either have to hire both of us or. We can't be in it. So they said, sorry, it's either, you know, one of you or none of you. And so we elected to be none of us. But I was really upset about that. So I took the script, and this was over uh, winter break, and I wrote three scenes for me and Tommy. And we were wannabe Riggs and Murtaugh. But we were the cops that showed up. After the crime was already, after they apprehended the criminal and they handcuffed him, you know, we pull up in our Grand Fury 3 with the whip antenna, we screech into the scene, we jump out of the car, we pull out our guns, and we're like, freeze, and, you know, they're taking the criminal away, and they're like, yeah, good job, guys, good job, we're like, yeah, 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 whatever. And then the final scene in the movie is we're on a stakeout, hoping to catch the bad guys, but the movie's over. So (laughs) I wrote us in the end credits. (laughs) So, so you see me and Tommy during the end credits waiting in the car, waiting for the, to, to capture the bad guys, but the movie's already over. And, and so um, I tell Tommy, I wrote us in the movie, he says, well, my agent knows Steve Perry, one of the producers. I said, well, get us a meeting. Come on, get us a meeting. And we actually got a meeting on the Warner Brothers back lot Filming had already begun, and we performed our three scenes for Dick Donner, the producers, Shane Black, the writer, craft service, PAs, (laughs) everybody was there just, you know, waiting for us to fail, and we knocked it out of the park. So they huddled, you know, Dick and Shane, the producers, huddle, 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 huddle. They come back, they go, guys, great job, super funny, he says, but we think that the comedy is a little broader than what's currently, uh, you know, written in the script, but... um, we love you guys. You got three days on the movie. You're cop number one, you're cop number two. We'll see you on the set. And that's how we got that job.
0: Well, it's a pity after hearing that because I could, I could picture just that last scene post credits <laughs> perfectly. Beautiful, right?
1: Yeah. Oh, that um. would have been absolutely perfect. So when we had Tommy on i mean he was uh, full of praise for you mm-hmm. so uh, <laughs> if there's anything you well, want I, to can't, I can't
3: say, I can't say the same to him I'll tell you that much
1: <laughs> well he will be listening
3: <laughs> <laughs> well that that's just good for our friendship then isn't it <laughs> no tommy's awesome uh you know tommy's one of the greatest people around he loves everybody he's light he's uh, uh effusive effervescent you know tommy's just oh, yeah. This, yeah yeah he's just this great energy and uh very inclusive and uh, uh he was one of the guys i met early on when i first came to town and uh yeah i got nothing but good things to say about that young man
1: yeah yeah i, I met him for uh the first time when i was in la two years ago and uh we just went to el coyote and just hit it off absolutely perfectly and uh, yeah He's been a friend ever since. Absolutely yeah. love the guy.
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, we wouldn't be in Lethal. I mean, if it wasn't for Tommy, we wouldn't be uh, in Lethal Weapon Two.
1: Uh, I would have yeah. left. Yeah, and you you still get the betting scene at the beginning of the movie as well.
3: Yes, we did. end up keeping that. You know, you know that I'm sure he told you this. The whole movie was shot originally to take place during Thanksgiving.
0: Yes. Yes. Yeah, yes, yeah, definitely.
3: and we had the <laughs> right, right, and that was that was cool because when we got the role, there were no lines for us. So when we get to set, Dick says, all right, here's the deal. You're in the precinct, and you're going to raffle off a live turkey. So come up with something about how to raffle off this live turkey. Uh, you got about 30 minutes, but before we get on set, come to my trailer and show me what you got. So me and Tommy had just auditioned for a Burger King commercial (laughs) a couple of days before. And the Burger King commercial was we had to come up with some kind of rap, right? So I said to Tommy, I said, uh, why, don't we, why don't we riff on the rap thing about this live turkey raffle? He says, okay. And I'm thinking, well, what's, what, what, what do you do when you buy a raffle ticket? Well, you take a chance. I said, okay, take a chance. Yeah, take a chance. Take a chance on a Thanksgiving turkey. Yeah, it ain't frozen. It's alive. Dig in your pocket and give us five. Take a chance. Take a chance. <laughs> take a chance on a Thanksgiving turkey. And Tommy just starts going, <clears throat> So, so Tommy's doing the beats and I'm singing this rap that we made up, and Dick is f-ing pissing in his pants. And we shot the whole scene. And one of the takes, we get to the end of the scene, and the turkey's trying to. Turkey decides to try to get out of Tommy's arms, and I pull out my gun and I tell Tommy, "Drop the turkey! Drop the f-ing turkey right now!" Boom, 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 and I fake shooting the turkey right there. <laughs>
0: Oh, I want to see an extended cut of this movie more than anything that I've ever seen in my life. Yes. Now,
3: yeah, now, I know this footage exists. I know it does. Somewhere in the archives. And I, I, I want that scene so badly. So badly.
1: Uh, well, if I am at Warner Brothers uh, when mm-hmm. I get there in a couple of weeks, I know I'm meeting people there. I'm gonna sneakly see if I can go in the archives just to discover if yeah. it's there. If yeah. not, it'll
0: be in Bill Daly's garage. Oh. <laughs> it probably will be yeah. in Bill Daly's
1: garage.
0: Uh well, right about the time of Lethal Weapon Two, you'll be playing Tony in Eddie Murphy's only directed movie Harlem Nights. Now this had a huge cast. Really did. Yeah, it was awesome. It was so awesome.
3: I mean, I've been so fortunate just to be surrounded by some of the talent, you know, mm. and during my career and I've gotten to work opposite, you know, some of icons. I've gotten to work opposite icons and I'm so grateful to have had that opportunity, you know, because there's Red Fox, Richard Pryor, yeah. Eddie Murphy and then, you know, everybody everybody in the black community who was anybody wanted to come onto the set and hang out. Mike Tyson showed up one day, yeah. you know. You know, it's one of those things where you got to go, you got to pinch yourself. You know, am, am I here? Am I really here? You
1: know? Yeah, and, and the thing is about that movie, I mean, it's kind of revered now as a bit of a cult classic. Mm. I know that it didn't get uh, as good as the release as was expected, but when you were filming it, I mean, obviously it's set in New York, but you were filming it in Los Angeles, I believe.
3: Yeah, Paramount Studios. Yeah.
1: Oh, was it Paramount.
3: Yeah.
0: Well, what was it like being directed by one of, at the time, one of the biggest box office draws?
3: Well, you know, uh, you know, Eddie wrote it.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: He starred in it. He directed it. Executive producer. So he was wearing a lot of hats. So uh, it was very challenging for him, and he was very tired a lot because you know, as a director, you got to get there early, and you you know. You may be the first to leave, but you're also the first one there, and you got to do homework the night before. And mm-hmm. uh, It was fine. I remember uh, now the bad guy was played by Michael Lerner. Yes. And Danny Aiello was also in the movie. So these are the two big names on the, this side of the color chart. So one day I say, it's my close-up. And Michael Lerner is just sort of, you know, phoning in his you know he's off camera he's just kind of reading the lines and i said to him i said uh, i said mike you do me a favor on this next take can you can you step it up a little bit and he turns to eddie murphy and he goes you believe this punk kid wants me to step it up a little bit and eddie looks at him and says then you better step it up
0: wow <laughs> he was properly on your side with that or was that just him wanting to try and get the best performance uh,
3: i think eddie like eddie liked me very much that was mm. an amazing that was because it's the audition right i go in to do the audition mm-hmm. and i sit down and i'm just sitting there and eddie's back he's looking out the window and he turns around and i said how you doing mr murphy I like call me eddie i says okay i'm sitting there he goes you ready i said yeah i'm ready and we do the scene and after the first scene he stops and he says okay uh you're the best you're the best i've seen today you got the job cast you can't say that ed you can't say that because i just said it you got the job man this is i'm done today i'm done with all this casting shit. all right i'll see you on the set i said thanks so now i'm walking off the lot and i see two of the other actors who just auditioned for the part before me and i you know i'm like i'm like the cat who just ate the bird right i'm like i'm like walking out of there you know i'm walking on sunshine these guys says i said they said, Hey, they go, how'd it go? I said, it went, it went well. He says, do you believe that guy? I said, what do you mean? He goes, I mean, he was just, and they were like talking bad about Eddie Murphy and his uncle, his uncle was in there. I forget his uncle's name. He was in there. And I I kept my mouth shut. I didn't like, I didn't join in. I didn't, you know, I just kind of walked away from that situation and got, wow, it's really interesting how everybody can have a different experience meeting the same person. Hmm. You know, yeah, I got, but even if I didn't get the job, I, 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 I didn't, he didn't come off as anything but just a guy, you know, just a guy, you know, doing his trying to do his job after a long day, you know.
0: This is probably actually the third Eddie Murphy connection that we've had. <laughs>
1: yeah. Everyone seems to have his little Eddie Murphy story somewhere. Yeah. So, yeah now, me and Michael positive.
3: Lerner, Michael Lerner and I almost got into a fight one oh.
1: day. Yeah,
3: it was, uh, <laughs> It was lunchtime, right? And I had, you know, I had been uh, getting a little praise for my work. And, you know, Eddie said that to Michael. And Michael and I were going back and forth. And he said something to me. And I said something to him. And he looked at me and he says, let me tell you something. You're not the star of this movie. I am. And I looked at him. I said, well, then you better start acting like it. (laughs) And he, he charges me, right? And Danny Aiello grabs him and, you know. But, but that was my attitude, walking uh, to the bathroom from my trailer one day to a couple of actors out there. And they were like, I hear, ah, who's that? Oh, that's Dave Marciano. He thinks he's a star. And I'm like to myself, yeah, you're damn straight I think I'm a star. If you don't think it, they're not going to believe it. You know, if you don't believe it, how are they going to believe it? And not that I am a star. And, you know, I never really, I never really made it as big as I thought had hoped I would or as thought I as big as I thought as I as I would. But um, I think having that attitude and belief in yourself, that you're, you know, you're special that you're, you know, uh, this is gonna what I don't care how it sounds, you know, but that you're better than everybody else. I, I think that carries you a long way. Uh, when I was in drama school, they asked me who my competition was. And most of the kids were talking about the other kids in the class. And I went, no, my competition is Robert De Niro. My competition is is Al Pacino, Dustin Hoffman, Eric Roberts, Mickey Rourke. That's my competition. And people looked at me like, how can that be your competition? You're in drama school. And I'm like, what, I'm going to stay in drama school?
1: You know, it's it's a really good point. We had this with one of our other guests recently who was saying um, another actor told him that what was it? Don't let them take your dignity because everyone will try yes. and take it.
3: Yeah. yeah, it's merciless. It's merciless in that regard. They'll take it anyway. I got story after story of mercilessness.
1: Well, I mean, in regards to Harlem Knights, I mean, it didn't do as well as projected. It, mm-hmm. it wasn't a, a runaway uh, smash film as much as mm-hmm. other Eddie Murphy movies were. But as I said, it, it is held in some kind of cult regard now. I and mean, how do you feel about the movie today?
3: I know this, I know that it did a lot for my career, regardless of whether I think it's a well-written movie or a well-directed movie or a well-acted movie. Um, you know, there's, there's really, really great movies and then there's really, really bad movies and there's everything else in between. And this is one of those movies that it's on the high end of the in between, right? Yeah, It's just on the high end of the in between. I think it would have done better if there was more Tony in it. Definitely would have done better. (laughs) I can tell you that much. That's that's the God's truth right there.
1: Who needs Michael Lerner? Just put Tony in there.
3: So Eddie wrote me another scene because I said to Eddie, I said, Eddie, you know, the first act you have Tony. Tony disappears for the middle of the movie, I said. And then he comes back in the third act. It's just gonna seem weird, and he goes, "No, it's fine, it's fine." Two days later, he came back and he wrote a scene with me and Dela Reese. Wow! And so Michael Lerner says to Eddie after we were reading the scene, he goes, "That shouldn't be Dave's scene. That should be my scene with Dela Reese." And after the discussion, they actually gave the scene to Michael.
0: Ooh, right.
3: Yeah,
1: yeah. Do you reckon that came down to kind of an insecurity?
3: Oh yeah, on Lerner's part. Oh yeah, he didn't want. No actor likes to be upstaged. Yes. Yes. No actor likes to be upset, (laughs) and I was upstaging you know him, so he had to put a stop to that, right? Yeah. It's small. It's just (laughs) being small. You know what I mean? Yeah.
0: (laughs) Well, going back to TV, you had your first kind of major recurring role in a series called Civil Wars, which was Mm cancelled after two seasons. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What can you tell us about this?
3: Well, you know Stephen Mm Botchko. I mean talk about Illuminary. There are certain shows that are game changers in the one hour drama. Hill Street Blues, which Steven created,
2: mm-hmm.
3: was the first game changer in, in yeah. the one hour drama. So everything before Hill Street Blues was episodic television, meaning that each episode had a beginning, middle and end, and none of the story carried over until next week's episode. Hill Street Blues is the first one hour primetime drama to do that. And when they asked Stephen, you know, later in his career in interviews, uh, that's so innovative. You know, it was like we had seen nothing like that on television before. What drove you to do that? In like, you know, that you're a genius. What genius? And he's like, no, it wasn't any genius. He goes, I had so many actors and they all kept coming into my office telling me to write for me, write for me, write for me. So the only way I knew how to write for everybody was to serialize it. And that's the first game changer. And then Steven Boschko is also credited for the second game changer, which is NYPD Blue. Yeah. NY, NYPD Blue pushed the envelope in terms of um, violence and sex and language on television. And there's two other game changers. There's uh, The Sopranos, because up until The Sopranos, every main character wore the white hat, right? Every, there was no antiheroes. They were just heroes. The cops solved all the crimes, the lawyers put all of them behind bars, and the doctors saved all the patients. None of their patients ever died. right? But Tony Soprano was the first lead character in a one-hour drama to be an anti-hero, And because of The Sopranos, you have the next game changer, which is The Shield. The Shield redefined television in the sense that the good guys were the bad guys, right? The good guy, <laughs> the cops were worse than the bad guys. And because of because of the shield you have everything on basic cable because of the shield you have breaking bad because of the shield you have rescue me because of the shield you just you know the shield is historic it also created a network um john landgraf the president of fx this is the fx was an offshoot of fox and this was the first show that they greenlit so it um it defined their network and it created a network and in that sense it's historic so you know, to be a part of a Stephen Botchko show uh, was an honor, uh, being that he had been responsible for two shows that changed the game of television as we know it. And then, of course, to be a part of the Shield that was even a bigger, as big an honor, as big of an honor. And uh, we'll get to Do South. Do South is historic in its own right too, but I, I won't. I won't talk about that yet. I'll talk about that when we get to it. So I loved being a part of that show. Um, I walked into Botchko's office because, like, when I came to town, you know, I would take meetings with agents and I would say, you know, they would like, okay, so, you know, what do you want to accomplish while you're here? I said, look, I didn't come here to go swimming. I didn't come here to learn how to surf. I didn't come here to get laid. I came here to win an Emmy, an Academy Award, a Clio, and a Golden Globe. I said, if you want to be a part of that journey, let's, let's sign the papers right now, you know, and Botchko was my shot. Bochco was my first shot at an Emmy because he had already had seven of them at the time. And I remember getting good material, but it wasn't enough to get me the Emmy. So he always, he said his door was, <laughs> yeah, yeah. this is my first series. This is before I understood the politics, okay, of, 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 of television. He says, my door is always open. I said, great. So I figured it was time to, time to get him to step up his game for me, right? So because I got to get my Emmy. And so I walk into his office and we're sitting, we're chatting. And I say, uh, he goes, so how can I help you? And I pointed to the seven Emmys up there. I said, I want one of those. And he says, no, you don't. I said, no, you say no, you don't because you have seven. I don't have any. Okay. I want one. I got one. And he says, well, how can I help you? I says, well, I'm thinking that maybe you guys could start writing for me, you know, some Emmy, Emmy award winning material. He kind of laughed. He says, really? I said, yeah. I said, look, what you're writing for me is great, but it's not going to get me the Emmy. You got kind of write me something that's going to, you know, emotionally complex. And he says, all right, I'll, uh, I'll think about that. Thanks for coming in. About a week later, I show up at his office and I'm talking to his secretary and his door is open and he hears me outside and all of a sudden his door just closes. Now, the door may have just closed because he could have been on the phone. I took it as my door is no longer open to you, you smart-ass little punk from New Jersey,
0: right? So what was it that actually led to the cancellation of the show?
3: There wasn't enough of Jeffrey Lassick in the show. If there was more Jeffrey Lassick...
1: <laughs> I'm sensing the theme. I think the, theme.
3: The, the, the show would still be on TV to this day, in my opinion.
1: <laughs> Funnily enough, this is going to seem so prophetic when we get into our next subject. Oh yes. Uh obviously going from there, uh you land the role that arguably it's it's made you the household name, well, everyone remembers you uh detective Ray Vecchio in Due South. Mm-hmm. Now yeah. We we've had um Ellen Dubin on the show. Uh-huh. Ca- Canadian actress uh she had a small role in one episode and we had a real talk about Due South and discovered that everyone seems to be a fan of Due South. Yeah,
3: it's um, crazy. Yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah, it and I have the feeling when looking at it, this was not projected to be as big a show as it became. What what was your kind of first impression when it landed on your lap?
3: That there were way too many Canadian references to a show that you were trying to introduce to an American audience and they wouldn't understand them. So though I thought it was funny, though I thought it was well written, I just didn't think it would be well received by an American audience my agent says to me you know who wrote this don't you i said who <laughs> and he says paul haggis i said who's paul haggis he said um, he won he i know i know ignorance is uh <laughs> ignorance it's just ignorance i don't care it's not bliss it's just stupidity okay is what it is so he says to me well he won the emmy for 30 something i said okay all right like uh, I'll, I'm not impressed by that. You know what I mean? I mean, Bochco has seven Emmys. He's got one. I'm just not, you know, I'm not super impressed by that, but okay. He says, why don't you go in for it anyway? I said, because I really don't think I could, uh, it's just not really, he goes, look, if you get this role, it'll make you a multimillionaire. I said, all right, I'll go in for it.
1: <laughs> I'll <laughs> buy my Emmy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so...
3: I'm working on these two scenes, right? And, and one scene, I'm killing it, no problem, I got it. But there's this one scene for the audition where the Mountie is standing stoic at the consulate, like-
2: Oh yeah, like, I plastic. know
3: Yeah, 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 like in the pilot, like, like, they, do, uh, like they do in England at the, uh, at the uh, palace, right? Yeah. That's it. I got to get him to come on because I, I, gotta, I, got, I got this beat on this criminal and I know where he is and we got to go now. We can't let him get away and, and you know, acting is reacting. A lot, you know, uh, and when you're not getting anything back from the character or actor you're working off of, it's really hard to get a rhythm
2: because you
3: got to create you got to create your own rhythm. So I go in to meet Haggis and we're waiting for forever. Haggis is it's just Haggis, Nan Dutton in the room. Nan was the cast director on the pilot. And we're waiting forever because Haggis is working with everybody. So finally, I get in there. And I feel like, you know, like they like they froze the kicker, you know what I mean? They called the timeout. And anyway, I do the I I start the scene and blah, 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 blah. And I just stop and I say, listen, I'm really sorry. I, you know, I've been waiting a long time. I said, I've been working on this scene for two days. It's just it's you know what? This part's not for me. And Haggis is like, no, 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 don't go. I'll go try it again try it again and i tried it and then i'm like nah i'm real. i apologize i don't mean to waste your time and i left and then about 3 30 my agent calls me and says what happened i said ah, i told you it wasn't for me i, I just it's not it's, he goes he loves you he wants you to come back he thinks you're perfect for the role he wants you to meet the director and i'm like are you f- serious <laughs> i walked out of an audition barely said three of the of, of the lines and he wants me to meet the director fine anyway i go meet the director i end up getting the job
0: well this has happened before we had uh, i think it was i think it was Brian Krause it was Brian saying Krause on the same Charms. thing yeah, yeah. <laughs> so th- there seems to be this uh, undercurrent really that if you've got doubts about going for something then you probably probably aiming for the right direction, to be honest. Yeah, yeah, may, yeah face.
3: That, that's one uh, uh, philosophical way to look at it. The other one is, is that there are certain things that are meant to be and there's nothing mm. you can do to stop it. There's nothing you can do to stop it. You can walk out of an audition. If it's meant to be your part, there's nothing you can do. It's already written, right? Uh, I use the example of uh, Michael, Michael Phelps, the swimmer, the Olympic swimmer. Mm. Right. So Michael's in high school and he's swimming, you know, like everybody else, same coach, da, 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 da. But every time Michael gets in the pool, there's something wrong with the stopwatch, right? Because, <laughs> you know, he's cracking records by a full second. And you don't do that in swimming, right? You, you, you know, swimming records are broken by a hundredth of a second, a tenth of a second, but then they're, they're rarely broken by a full second or two. So Michael's crushing it, and there's the beginning of the O word. They're starting to talk about the Olympics. So the mother goes to see the high school coach and says, uh, so I hear that uh, there's grumblings about Michael possibly going to the Olympics. And the coach is like, yeah, there is. And she goes, well, what can we do to ensure it to happen? And the coach looked at her, and she said, there's nothing we can do to stop it.
0: That's a good quote. Wow.
3: Yeah, it's, it's Tiger Woods. You know what I mean? It's Michael Jordan. It's, yeah. it's Michael Jordan gets cut. From his college basketball team. I mean, if it's meant to, there's nothing, there's, there's nothing you can do to stop this sometimes. There's just nothing you can do. And that was Due South. Due South was, was one of those things that you couldn't kill. You know, it got canceled twice by CBS mm-hmm. and came back for a third season. It, after the pilot was cast and we were ready to shoot, they pulled it because there was no snow. Two weeks two weeks later two weeks later they found some snow in the yukon and it came back you know it was a show that never died
0: yeah because i remember at the time it was huge and it was properly global
3: well it was very big in the queen countries right it was yeah. very very big in england very big in australia um very big in canada of course uh, and then it did well it did well in germany it did well in uh, france it just did well internationally it did very well internationally because the third season that was how they financed it because um, there was no american uh producer in season three it was financed by the bbc hmm. and um i think alliance and by the way du south is coming we're in the process of rebooting do south
0: oh yes oh <laughs> fantastic uh, that's what we've waited br- for
3: it's breaking news. I hope that's an exclusive. Da, da, da. It isn't a, well oh.
1: it's been
3: it's out there on the internet. It's out there on the internet, but
1: Yeah, but the internet lies. We've got the first verbal commitment. Yeah. Oh <laughs> I, I am that. so excited. I am so
0: excited about this now.
3: All right, so so here's the story. Here's the story. So I go up to Canada, I go up to Toronto to shoot an episode of twelve monkeys, right? And I'm in the wardrobe, I'm getting wardrobe, and one of the PAs' last name is Saracusa. And I said, Syracusa, I said, um, is, is Frank Saracusa your father? She said, yes. I said, get him on the phone. Frank was one of the producers of the show, Canadian producers of the show. Anyway, I said, Frank, we got to meet, da-da-da. He says, okay. And I said, and bring the Mountie. Make sure you bring the Mountie. <laughs> so, <laughs>
2: so, <laughs>
3: so, you know, we're, we hadn't seen each other in Christ 20 years at the time and we're all sitting around chit-chatting and I'm saying um, it dawned on me I said hey have you guys thought about rebooting Due South and they looked at me like why would we do that I said well they're rebooting everything in the states Hawaii Five-O, Magnum Mm -hmm. PI it's just one reboot after the other uh you know Due South was probably next to Degrassi the biggest show to come out of Canada Degrassi was a kid's show a teenage show that Mm -hmm. that did better internationally but Due South New South, this is historic because it was the first Canadian produced television show ever to make it to the primetime networks.
0: Wow. I didn't know that.
3: Yes. It's the yeah, very true. first. And it also garnered more Canadian Emmys than any other show in Canadian history. So the show is, is pretty uh, auspicious. I mean, the show is just historic. iconic in that. Yeah. yeah. Historic and iconic in that sense that uh, it went in went one ear and out the other. So about a year later, I'm like, I'm sitting at home and I'm, you know, I'm a writer and I'm thinking, I, I think this is, I think we got something here with this rebooted New South and I'm going to take a shot at breaking the story of the new pilot. I'm just going to break the story. I'm just going to write the pilot myself and then take it to see what happens from there. And I end up, uh, writing this pilot. I swear to God in three weeks, I, I, you know, I did all the research on the characters. Uh, you know, I came up with a way to, uh, to have two younger leads, and uh, I sent it to David Shore. Now, David Shore is the showrunner of House. Yes. Mm-hmm. And currently the showrunner of The Good Doctor. Right. David Shore's very first writing job, he's Canadian, his very first writing job was due south. And we have stayed friends. And he read it, and he loved it, and I sent it to Paul Gross, the Mountie. He read it. He loved it. And then I sent it to Robert Lantos, who was the original executive producer of Alliance. And he loved it. And he, um, we've now entered into an agreement with E1 Entertainment because E1 Entertainment currently owns the rights to do South. And uh, we're in the process of uh, putting a team together. And it's imminent that um, I believe this is going to happen in the next year or so.
1: That is incredible. That's probably the best news I think we've ever broken on this show. Oh, yeah. hell yeah. And and this is, um, not as in like a full reimagining, this is the original characters coming back together, right?
3: Well, I'll tell you what, because of the current marketplace, we're going to, the idea currently on the table, and this can change, of course, is that the two leads are going to be younger. Mm-hmm. The way it's written now, but I don't think it's going to stay like this, the way I wrote it was that the uh, Chicago cop is my adopted son. Right. The Chicago cop will be played by my person of color adopted son, and the Mountie will be played by a female. Right. Wow. And then Paul and I will reprise our roles.
1: So would that be uh, Paul Gross's daughter from one of the many housewives who had pictures of Paul Gross up in 1994? (laughs) (laughs)
3: Well, I I did not want to give that information away, but if you remember, uh, the Mountie had sex with um, Victoria Metcalf. Victoria's Secret, yeah. And Victoria's Secret, and unbeknownst to the Mountie, she got pregnant uh, because of that encounter. Now, she escapes at the end of the episode, which is only, you know, days after they had sex, she escapes on a train. Mm Mm-hmm and um, she finds out she's pregnant and she decides to keep the baby never tells her daughter who her father is until the opening until we open the pilot right so she doesn't know who her father is but ever since she's a kid she loves everything canadian she wants canadian bacon she likes hockey she 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 eats haggis nobody eats haggis this girl eats haggis she wants to be a Canadian scout. So, you know, she goes every summer, she goes to Canada for two weeks to be a Canadian scout and she goes every winter. And she decides every, every Halloween, she wants to be a Mountie. She dresses up as a Mountie as a kid. So she decides that she wants to be a Mountie. And so she, um, she leaves America and she becomes a Mountie. Her 25th birthday, she gets a letter from her, her mother from Victoria. And right now she's in um she's in a detachment, an RCMP detachment in Tukti Uptuk. Uh, and the and the and the pilot opens with her on a you don't know it's a woman on a bobsled, right? And there's this Russian poacher in the basket of the bobsled, and behind her are two sleds of illegal pelts. And you see this musher just going through this blinding snowstorm over, you know, over hills and through, you know, creeks and and this and she pulls up into this detachment and she takes the she takes the uh the russian poacher out of the basket and slings it over her shoulder and you're thinking this mounty is one badass dude right and opens up the door to the detachment and throws the throws the poacher into the cell on the bed and when she takes off her hat and everything we reveal that it's a woman wow and it's her 25th birthday on that day and um a letter comes from her mother Telling her who her father is, he's the most decorated Mountie of all time, you know Ben Fraser, and so she knew it, and so now she wanted to find out where her father is, and if you remember how the series ended, Fraser, and that other guy, oh, not yeah. allowed to be not allowed to be mentioned in my presence, by the, the way, not allowed.
0: distinct. To be... yeah, yeah,
3: yeah, that yeah that, yeah. yeah that guy, you know, who tried to play the who tried to play the detective role. He, you know, he. Yeah. Look, he had the accent down, but that was about all I'll give him. Okay, I
1: can't wait to get to that bit.
3: (laughs) uh, Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You should have seen that first day on the set when we were both there. So uh, at the end of season three, the Mountie and uh, Stanley Kowalski, they head into the uh, they head up to the Northwest Territories in search of. it was an expedition that went to find the Northwest Passage, and they end up their boat ends up sinking off of some island, and they never made it. but we never hear from the Mountie or Kowalski ever again, so she wants to find her father.
0: Is there going to be a scene written into the script where Frazier had to survive by eating Kowalski? <laughs>
3: It may make it into the next version. It may make it. I'm not going to give you credit, but it may make it because we steal. There's, there's three ways. To, oh, you know, there's only three ways to make money in Hollywood. You know that, right? You, act, you steal it and then you sue the people who stole it from you. Or you actually come up with an idea and work for it. That's the third way you make the money in Hollywood.
1: It's a true story.
3: Oh, my God. So true. So she calls her mother. I just got my. I just got a letter. You know. Why, you know. Thanks for f- telling me after twenty-five years. When was the last time you saw my father? And she said the last time I saw your father was his partner shot him in the back at Union Station in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And if you remember, she was leaving on the train, yeah. and Frazier was Frazier was going after her, and he was torn between letting her go and bringing her to justice. And I come running up the stairs, and I see him running towards her and she's got something in her hand and I can't, it looks like a gun and I can't let the criminal get away. And I pull out my gun and he sees me pull out my gun and I go to shoot her and he dives in front of the bullet Mm -hmm. and he gets shot
1: in the back. It was genius. It was one of the most captivating things. And I always said that should have been the season end for season two, but it ended up tacking another episode on the end of that. I don't remember that. that haunting music as well. Yeah. It was one. Sarah McLaughlin.
3: Oh. Oh, Haggis, you know, Haggis directed that. And I have to tell you, it is brilliant. Victoria's Secret is a, there's two parter. It's just, it's just, it's a movie in itself. And Haggis is, Haggis, he just, he just nailed it. Oh,
1: yeah. Yeah. I remember the episode that they put on after that. Uh, The one thing that I can remember about it, I think it was uh, you and Paul. And I think Paul was incapacitated or something. And I remember you were paddling in a boat with him or it was a kayak, or something like yeah, that. Yeah,
3: it was. In the sewer system, yeah. In the, in the yeah. sewer system, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they actually built that. They actually built that set. They built a sewer system with the water in it for us to paddle through.
1: Well, we've we've definitely heard on uh, the upcoming plans for Due South, which is amazing and really exciting, but uh, we're going to have to dip into the past of Due South. I believe you've got a question, Steve. Well,
0: for me, as far as Due South is one of the best features of it was your chemistry with your co-star Paul Gross because it's really it's really hard to kind of fake an on-screen chemistry but it seemed with you two that it was pretty much effortless
3: yeah that's very astute of you yes, um you. we just we we would have this uh I don't know not a joke but we would just tell the writers and producers look <clears throat> Do south is made on the floor I understand that you spent a lot of time in the writers' room, and we appreciate all your hard work. And it's very good what you've done. But what happens on the floor between me and Paul is inexplicable. Mm-hmm. It's magical, you know. You've seen it over the years. I mean, you know, have and Tracy. You've seen it with um, Laurel and Hardy. You see it with Abbott and Costello. You see, you know, you see it with these great, um, these great teams. I'm not saying that we're as iconic as any of those people I mentioned. We're not. You can't, like you said, you can't fake it. You can't make it up. You can't. You can't produce it,
1: hmm.
3: right? You, you you can't produce it. It's just one of those things that uh, happens.
1: So in the series, I mean, uh, he was the the straight man. You had a lot of comic relief element to you. Was that true off screen as well? Was he very straight man too? how you were
3: uh no no off screen we were uh we hated each other really no that was
1: a joke Um, Uh, i was gonna say there's no way that is true no
3: (laughs) well there were some huge differences he grew up in calgary around horses he's more of a cowboy and i grew up in you know north new jersey and i was an urban city guy so they the two don't mix very well. I don't like country music, though. I though I'm impressed by it, you know, and I think it's an art form and it's beautiful. Country music is beautiful. It's not. It's not I don't. I don't have an ear for it. I, it doesn't speak to me. Right? And there was also the there was the competition um, aspect to our relationship because I was number two on the call sheet, mm-hmm. and when you think of buddy shows. How often do you remember the number two guy or gal? Uh, Bosom Buddies. Remember the show Bosom Buddies? Yeah. Who was the star of that show? Oh. Tom Hanks. Yeah. Who was the other guy?
1: (laughs) You've seen um, it. I've not seen this one. (laughs) Oh, you've got the uh, perfect excuse. Uh, I've got the guy's face in my head.
3: But but you don't understand my point. You understand Mm -hmm. my point. And I did not want to be the, the unremembered guy of the Buddy Cop show. So uh, there was a lot of pushback from me put upon Haggis to make this as equal as possible because I didn't want to disappear after the show.
1: With the show, uh, we did have, uh, obviously, a Diefenbaker question that was sent in by James Dunn, our actor and wrestler friend. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. And he asks, uh, what was your chemistry like with Diefenbaker on screen and off? Did you get along...
3: I've been allergic to dogs ever since I was a child.
1: Oh,
3: no. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it was easy for me not to like Deef and Baker. It was easy for me to play all those little, um, you know, disgusting, like it disgusted me and, Ew, ah, you know, so it was just natural for me. There was one scene when Deef had to lick my face. Oh. So, yeah, yeah. So they put uh, baby baby food, turkey, turkey baby food on my face.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: You know, Deep's licking me with his tongue at night in the car by the river. It's cold. <clears throat> I didn't care for it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You ever see a person kiss their dog like tongue to tongue? You ever oh, seen that? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, come on. Oh, Jesus Christ. Really? Really? It's, I just can't take it. I'm I've sorry, seen
1: what again. they do with that tongue. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I can't take it. <clears throat> in, in speaking of that, that obviously would not rank as a high point. Mm-hmm. But during the entire show's run, did you have maybe a, a favourite moment on a particular episode that stands out? You know, what was the kind of most rewarding day on that show for you?
3: Uh, there were so many Just so many moments of when it all comes together, you know, Uh, the filming of North. Mm -hmm. The filming, that was the first episode of season two after the show had been canceled. Right. Yeah. And so we come back and it's the first day, first day of filming. And nobody knows how it's how, you know, are we going to pick up where we left off? Is it going to take a couple episodes to get in the rhythm? First scene we shot, the first take. The director said cut. And everybody stood there in 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 awe you know you know when they in the olympics when they have to transition from one runner to the next seamlessly Mm
2: -hmm. yeah
3: and the passing the baton and it's just seamless and it just you know like you know or the ice skaters the short track ice skaters stuff it was it was north was amazing uh working with carrie Ann moss oh uh, yeah That was amazing. The scene, the scene in the basket in the gym um, with the character. The I can't remember the actor's name, but the character was Zuko, Frank Zuko. Yeah. That scene in the basketball in the gym, magical. Um, So, Kowalski's coming in season three, and I got to transfer my desk. He's going to take over my desk, and um, I don't want him to sit there. And I have my 32 cases piled up on my desk, unsolved. By the way, I had 32 unsolved cases on my desk from the pilot to the end of the show, just so you know. <laughs> I never solved the case on my own. Never solved the case on my own. Uh, so Callum, we're doing the scene, and he just trashes my desk. He takes 32 cases, and he just throws them off the desk. He throws everything off my desk and basically tells me to get out of his chair which was my chair and uh that was a pretty powerful moment for me because i knew that was it was over right
2: mm-hmm. yeah
3: it was over my my character was over my 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 acting on that job was over and then i remember i had to go back to shoot the final episode of season three and i remember sitting we're shooting in a hotel it was like four in the morning and i'm sitting on the couch between like two three other people and i'm watching everybody I'm watching everybody, you know, doing their jobs, you know. We're waiting, it's in between, you know, they're changing the lighting, they're they're turning around. And I thought to myself, all these people have been doing this five days a week for the last nine months without me. And I was like, I was sad. I was kind of sad in that moment. The revelation that that you are replaceable, that it can go on without you. Life goes on without you. Yeah. Uh, Now, would the show still be on the air today? If, you know, they didn't, you know, hire Callum Keith Rennie and I had stayed in that role, yeah, we'd still be shooting episodes
1: today. (laughs) (laughs) Obviously needed more Ray Vecchio. Yeah. (laughs) I think
3: that was the problem with season three. There wasn't enough of the original Ray Vecchio.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I'll, I'll go online. Season three did actually suck. Yeah, <laughs> it, you were
0: noticeable by your absence. Let's put it that way.
3: Yeah, yeah, no, it's 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 true, and it's kind of it's kind of sad because you know season season one, you know, Haggis was the showrunner driving force, and that's that's due south that it's purest. Mm-hmm. Season two, Kathy Slevin and uh, Jeff King took over, and then they brought in this other team of show writers, showrunners towards the end, and that was more like Do South light. And then season three, nothing against Paul Gross, uh, but Paul Gross was running the show. Paul Gross, you know, bit off more than he not more than he could chew because Paul's an amazingly smart, talented actor and producer director but it was a huge challenge season three. And when you change your, your a buddy cop show, when you change your, your second lead and you're still trying to, they knew they couldn't hire a guy like me, right? So they had to either, do we replace David Marciano with a French looking guy, you know, a little guy that looks sort of, you know, European or Eastern European or, and he's doing the same kind of thing, no. That wasn't going to work, right? Because it would have been, it would pale in comparison. So they tried to go a different way. And um, they just didn't have the, it didn't have the, you know, it became more of a Mountie show, I think, season three. And when I contacted Robert Lantos after I wrote the pilot for the Do South reboot, I sent him an email saying, um, I wanted to talk to him about something and talk about a reboot and he said uh yeah please send to me and he says you know david i only have one regret the do south and i said what's that he goes not making a deal with you for season three because mm. that's why i'm not in the, that's why i wasn't in season three they didn't want to pay me they wanted to pay me less money in season three than they paid me in season one
0: right because that's not that's not the way it works usually no
3: No, 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 no. This is, this is our last season. The only reason why you're making season three is so you can strip sale the show into syndication,
0: Mm
3: -hmm. right? Because there's no reason to make season three. So you, you need me in order to get your maximum dollars in your strip sale, in your syndication sale. You don't change your second lead. So I thought I had them. I thought I had leverage. And granted, look, I asked for an astronomical amount of money. I did. You know, I asked for more than they were willing to pay. Now, I'm not astronomical. It really wasn't. I was asking for $2 million all in. No residuals, no nothing. I don't care what happens. You just give me $2 million. I'll I'll sign whatever you want me to sign. We shoot the next 22 episodes or 20 episodes, which is what? Which is what? 2 million 20 episodes. What's that? 100,000 an episode?
0: About that, yeah. About that, yeah.
3: Yeah. Which was the amount he was only getting 75, I think, for season three. But I don't know what he was getting to write and produce it. But I guess $100,000 an episode was too much for them to, to part with. But they didn't even counter. They didn't even come back. Like they made their offer of 750000 all in which came to less per episode than I was getting paid in season one. So I said, no, give me 2 million. And then they never came back with like, okay, we'll give you a million five. They never came. They never countered my offer. They just moved on. And according to Lantos, that's his biggest regret.
0: I can definitely understand that because the, the, like, like I said, the, the third series, it did not feel the same. And, that uh, the relationship between Frazier and the fake Ray Vecchio, it just, <laughs> it it didn't it, it didn't work nearly as well as it did in the beginning.
3: No, no, it didn't. Um, it was sad. It was really sad for every for all around. For you know, from my point of view, um, you know. But you look at you look at like a show like NYPD Blue. You know, they replaced David Caruso with Jimmy Smits, and it worked fine. Mm. But that's a different type of show, yeah, and that's more of an ensemble cast. Even though you have the two, Dilly do South was something special. It was just uh, like I said, it was like, it's like trying to replace Abbott and Costello, or trying to replace you know Laurel and Hardy, or you know, you just you you, you just
1: can't do it. No, definitely not.
0: Well, speaking of partners, one thing that uh, some people may not know, you know, obviously, um, but the actress who played uh, Ray's ex-wife Angie.
3: <laughs>
0: were, was Katian Amini, am I pronouncing that right? Uh, you are, you are. Yeah. Uh, who's actually your wife and mother to your children.
3: Yeah, and you know, that that, uh, that episode was uh, prophetic because she's my ex-wife now. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to thank Paul Haggis for, for writing that role because, you know, art does imitate, life does imitate art.
2: Mm-hmm. Yes.
3: <laughs> yeah that was fun i was so happy that she did it and um she did a great job and i i don't think she ever came back i don't know if she came back i think she only did one episode i can't remember if she did two but um yeah that was fun to work with your with my spouse it was a lot of fun
2: yeah
0: yeah yeah
1: the, it's every man's dream um <laughs> yes, I, i'd probably end up working with mine on judge judy (laughs) that's as far as i'd get
0: yeah
1: yeah life after due south uh
0: you go on to appear in shows such as nash bridges jag nypd blue like you mentioned and csi Mm. before landing the role of steve billings in the fx show the shield in the fourth season until the seventh yeah. So, how did you end up in this role, and uh, what was the difference between how it was pitched and what you brought to the character?
3: Okay, so it's a long that's a long time to go between series regular roles.
0: Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah,
3: because the only way you can make any real money in television is to be a series regular. You know, guest starring they doesn't pay enough. You have to do. You'd have to do. Uh, 10 guest stars a year just to make the amount of money you could make in one episode as a series regular. Wow. Uh, yeah. Five for sure. Right. Five for sure.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: So, you know, to get five guest stars in one year, that's not easy to do um, unless you're on, you know, a recurring role, recurring guest star, which I, I did a couple of those after Homeland, but um, so Sean Ryan's kids and my kids went to the same elementary school, mm-hmm. so I had heard about this show, The Shield, and that starred Michael Chiklis. And I didn't watch it because one, well, Michael Chiklis and I started out together. I don't know in your research if you came across a pilot called Maverick Square. No. Okay, Mavic Square was written by Frankie Renzulli, directed by Steve Miner, and it starred me and Michael Chiklis. It was a modern-day Honeymooners.
1: Oh, all
3: right, okay. Yeah, loosely based based on the Honeymooners. Uh, Very loosely, but it was two couples, you know, lived in the same neighborhood, best friends, you know, blah, blah, blah. So when I heard that, you know, Michael had gone on and was doing this thing called The Shield, it was like, all right, you know, good for him I like Michael um uh, great you know benevolent narcissist uh and I say that not in a disparaging way because everyone who is a star in this business has some uh, uh is on the spectrum of narcissism in some manner you mm. can't you cannot not love yourself or think you're think you're God's gift to the world in order you know you can't you can't be that that star I didn't really watch it, but um, everyone's like, you got to watch it. You got to watch it. And I would see Sean and one day Sean stopped me and he says, "Uh, I just want you to know, I said, congratulations on your show. I hear it's doing very, very well. And you won the Emmy and, you know, Uh, he says, yeah, thank you. He says, "Uh, I'm a big fan of yours. I said, great. He goes, and I'm going to keep my eye out for you. I said, okay, that was season two. Season two goes by nothing. Season three, I see Sean, you know, we drop our kids off. We see each other. He goes, I'm thinking about you. And I said, I can't wait. Season three goes by, nothing. I'm thinking, is this, what's this guy, why is he saying this to me? All right. Season four, I see him one morning and he said, I got it. I got it. I'm going to have casting call your agent and set up an, uh, uh, an appointment for an audition. I'm like, great. So... I get the material, it's very good. And I go in to do the scene and the same thing happened that happened on Due South. It wasn't jiving. You know, I rehearsed it fine, but when I got in the room, it just wasn't coming out of my mouth, trippingly upon the tongue, as they say, right? Sean wasn't there. the director producer was there and the casting person And I said, uh, tell Sean, I'm really sorry, but thank you for the opportunity. And I left. Of course, I get home a couple days later. uh, My agent calls me and says, what happened? I said, it was just, you know, one of those things, a bad day, you know, off day. He says, well, they think that you were upset because Sean wasn't in the room. I said no i didn't care that sean wasn't in the room i said i had a bad day i'm not putting this on anybody this is all on me it was just you know i struck out instead of hit a home run you know the hall of famers strike out some days they said well sean's going to be there but he only has 15 minutes and you got to be there at 10 30. now it's 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 10 o'clock I'm at school, and I'm the school's campus gardener, right? I'm, I'm, I'm in charge of campus beautification. So I got my jeans on, my, my boots. I'm in my campus shirt, my little blue Hollywood schoolhouse shirt, and I'm covered in dirt, and I haven't shaven. And I got 30 minutes to get to Prospect Studio, so I don't have time to go home and shower, shave, and put on a suit because that's what, you know, to dress up like a detective. So I just said, fuck it. I'm just going to go like this. And I walk in the room and I apologize for my attire. I tell him I just got the call, blah, blah, blah. Sean said, no, that's cool. He says, okay, let me see what you got. I did it and I killed it. I'm talking grand slam, grand slam. And Sean looks over at the two, the the director, the other, the director, other executive producer, he goes, this is why you called me out of my office. That was perfect. He goes, listen, since I'm here, make this adjustment. He gave me the adjustment, I did the adjustment, again, another home run, and he left and he said, please don't ever waste my time like this ever again. And I got the job.
2: Wow. That's
0: and
3: what was the second part of your qu- Yeah, it was, it was really, what was the second part of your question? Oh, I forgot.
0: Well, what was the difference between how the character was originally written and how- oh, yeah, yeah. Or yeah. what you brought to the role? Behaviour. Mm-hmm.
3: What a lot of writers don't write in to, uh, Their characters is behavior, right? Um, Playing with props, using using props to your advantage, or uh, mannerisms, uh, idioms, speech idioms. You know things that, that you know. Good writers will, but great writers can. So there's a couple of interesting scenes. I'm sitting at my desk. It was the car wash episode. It's the end of the car wash episode.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
3: And I'm waiting for my fate. Something's going to come down. It could be the car wash episode. It could be another episode. I can't remember. And I'm sitting at my desk and I'm just waiting for them to bring me the information, whether, you know, I'm fired or I'm caught or I'm, I'm let, you know, they're not going to investigate it. And I decide to start loading my stapler. And I'm just sitting there loading the stapler. And that moment, most actors would just sit there, right, and look at a file. Or I chose to load my stapler. Uh, uh, another little bit was I'm on the phone, and they say, "Steve, we're going up to interrogation. Um, uh, if you're not too busy." And I and I and I go to like twist the phone, and the phone kind of twists in my arm, and like it does like a like it's like it's falling, and I can't catch it. And I said, "And I say, yeah, well." Some big titty girls come in, you know, and you want to be interrogated, let me know, you know. Uh, So (laughs) it was it was certain mannerisms, certain uh, little pieces of behavior that sometimes came out uh, by accident. Like I didn't try to have that phone slip out of my hand. I was just going to hang it up normally. But as I went to hang it up, it slipped out of my hand and I tried to catch it and it became a humorous moment. Another one is uh, Danny says, what is it with you guys? every time you got your hands in your pockets, you're playing looks like you're playing pocket pool so what i decided to do with her line was be playing with my balls in my pockets i'm playing with my balls so when she says the line and the camera turns to me i pull my hands out of my pocket and okay i got caught playing with my balls so that wasn't written in the script so those those little things you you look for moments that are there's something written in the script that triggers a behavior in a character that's not written. Mm -hmm. And I think those were the, the nuances that I brought to the character that, um, that weren't originally written. I brought a humor to the character that was not originally conceived or written.
0: Uh, No, I know what you mean. Cause um... There are always those moments when you're on set and you read a script and it can come off as a little bit dry. But then something something happens and it could be the person that you're working with or it could be, like you say, a prop or a piece of costume or something that just kind of just tweaks your thinking about what it is that you're doing in some way and something unique just comes from that.
3: Yeah, like they're talking about something serious and I see a piece of lint on my on my lapel. And I just start picking at my lapel in the middle of a very important discussion about some crime. I'm like, and they're like, Steve, I'm like, huh? <laughs> you know, like I just, <laughs> huh? What? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's fine. Whatever you guys decides, good with me. And I go back to my picking the lint off my lapel, not written in the script.
1: It's just simple little things, but add so much more in character. Mm-hmm. They do. They do. And then uh, speaking of characters, and you kind of mentioned it earlier on, um, Homeland. So, you became a regular character from seasons one to three, and you played the freelance surveillance expert Vigil. Out did the, the first name up? Jesus Christ. Okay. <laughs> freelance surveillance expert Virgil Piotrowski.
3: Petrosky, maybe? I don't know his last name, but I think it's Petrosky.
1: Petrosky. But it could be freelance whatever Freelance surveillance expert Virgil. There you go. <laughs> So this again, you you're becoming a a series regular. Uh, mm-hmm. You're working with your know, fantastic talents like uh, Claire Danes, Forrest Whitaker as well. Uh, in one episode, some English bloke. Yeah, yeah some English bloke. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know
3: what a guy. I mean, talk about a a, a love. You know, uh, just Damien. It was such so, so heartbreaking when I heard his wife passed and um. Yeah. I I asked for his email from. I got an email for him, and it was an old email, and he and I don't know if he got it, but um, you know, I I sent out my heartfelt condolences to him and his two children. Uh, that was,
0: I mean, she was a wonderful actress. She really so was.
3: good, so good. Yeah, so talented. Yeah, no, Damien, Damien, uh, yeah super 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 guy now let's talk about the other two
1: (laughs) (laughs) okay so uh tell me about the other two on the show
3: (laughs) (laughs) all right so claire danes won the triple crown of acting so the triple crown of acting is emmy golden globe sack award
2: Mm
3: -hmm. right if you win all three of those awards for the same character and she did in Homeland. And if you remember, a year or two before, she won the uh, triple crown of acting again for her role as Temple Grandin.
1: Yes, yeah, Temple Grandin.
3: And the HBO film that they made about, about her. There, there, there's, two, there's, there's, there's two kinds of actors in general. There's many different facets of actors, but there's, in general, there's two kinds. They're very giving actors. And then there's very selfish actors. Yeah. When I say selfish, I mean actors who spin within themselves. Damn. And the, ter- the term we use for that is masturbatory, which means they're feeling it, they're getting off, but you're not. And that's why she was so good at Temple Grandin, because that's the type of actress she is. She spins within herself. But Claire has this uncanny ability. I don't know any other actor who approaches the craft as she does spinning within herself and still allows you to feel what she's feeling. Most of the time, they just feel it and you're like, you know, you're not getting anything, for, they're not moving you, you're, you're not rooting for them. But she has this uncanny ability to do that. Uh, it was really hard working with her. For me, it was very difficult, very challenging because what is chemistry? Chemistry is the mixing of two elements. So yes. you, have to, you have to give, you have to pour one element into the other and mix them in order to get chemistry. You can't have two elements just spinning two feet away from each other. So on the one hand, Homeland was a great experience for me business-wise, right?
2: Mm-hmm.
3: I got to go to the Golden Globes. I got to go to the Emmys. I got up on stage, when we won the Golden Globe for Best Drama and... I was in the room with all of my peers, you know, and, and that, that year Argo was up and uh, Daniel Day-Lewis was there. And I think um, Joaquin Phoenix was there for his performance in The Master, which was probably one of the most amazing performances I've ever seen, uh, as, as well as his Joker, uh, his performance. I mean, he's, to me, he's, he's an artist, right? There's, there's actors and there's artists. You know, and there's nothing wrong with being an actor, but then there's artists. And Homeland, Homeland in terms of creatively, was one of the most um, unfulfilling experiences of my career. Uh, and then season two, I'm thinking, great, all my stuff's with Mandy. Fantastic. Finally, a theater actor. Another narcissist. Unbelievable. <laughs>
1: Yeah, there's, there's plenty of uh, word about Oh out there. my
3: God, I couldn't believe it. I'm like, look me in the eye. Please just look me in the eye once. Somebody on this show, well, somebody, you know, I knew Damien would have looked me in the eye. But um, so I, I, I couldn't believe it. I was working with, you know, award winning actors who were acting by themselves. And look, I get it. When you're playing a tough role, like Claire's it's very introspective I get it I get it and I know how hard it is to to play that but you have to consider you have to consider the other actor in the scene you have to if you don't it's really a disservice to the art it's a disservice to to what we do that's why I've only lasted until season three
0: well, series one and two was universally acclaimed across the board pretty much, but season three, he started to cool off. And Do you see the smidge.
3: pattern, gentlemen? Do you see the pattern? <laughs> yes,
1: obviously needed more Virgil.
3: <laughs> Absolutely it did. Absolutely it did. They missed a huge opportunity. Virgil was the only character, and, and now I'm being serious, right? I know we're making a joke, but Virgil was the only character who had her back, was the only one. When you take that element out of the storytelling, she has nowhere to go, and you need that. You need that character to have some place to go, someone to go to, to say, I understand that I'm here for you. Ah, the stuff we could have done, and they refused to, they, they, they didn't do it, and I believe they didn't do it because Claire, because Claire didn't want me on the show any longer because of what I said.
1: It was such a a well-loved show. I mean, it was a pretty big show as well for those first couple of seasons. I mean, you had uh, Barack Obama, who basically said he was a huge fan of the show. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah.
1: Hillary Clinton apparently was asking for early screeners of the episodes before they actually came out. And it had such a huge fan base. And uh, someone said online today when I mentioned that you were coming onto the show, they said Homeland is one of my favorite shows ever. But a lot of people seem to kind of agree that the, f- the first two seasons are great. And then it was probably following that pattern of, you know, the difficult third season. Yeah.
3: Well, you know, they had, they had a choice to make. They didn't want to go the traditional route, which would have been every two seasons have a bad guy. Mm-hmm. Like one main bad guy. Yeah. Right. And go after that, him or her, and bring him or her to justice or whatever. And then next season or two seasons bring in another bad guy. They tried to do something different and unique. And I don't think they were successful at it.
1: No, definitely not. Moving
0: on to Bosch and a mustacheless <laughs> Titus Williver.
3: Yes.
1: Yes. Oh, we, we love missed Titus. That, yeah. Yes. We miss that Deadwood moustache, Titus.
3: <laughs> Dude, so, what a career this guy's had. What a career. Oh, oh. Titus is just so lucky. I mean... You know NYPD Blue, Deadwood, mm-hmm. uh, the town. He's in the town, which is a damn good small movie, mm-hmm. uh, and and Affleck's directing is just fantastic.
0: Yeah, because we were talking the other day with John Ashton about his time working on um, Gone Baby Gone. Gone Baby Gone. Yeah, with uh, with Titus mm. and was obviously that was Ben Affleck's first one. Um, but sticking on Bosch, um, yeah. how did you end up landing this role?
3: That was done the traditional way. There was nothing, nothing odd. I, I went in, I auditioned. Uh, the showrunner gave me an adjustment. He said that was fantastic. That's one of the best adjustments that anyone's ever given me. Uh, most people, they, they ask for an adjustment and they just give them the same thing over again. <laughs> they don't make the adjustment, <laughs> you know, because it's hard. It's really hard to make that adjustment in an audition process mm. because, you know, you're in a heightened situation and you've worked really hard to give them, to bring something to them that you've worked on for days. And then boom, they want you to change it right there on the spot. And you don't have a lot of time to, you can say, give me, give me, I need five minutes, right? You can't say that and leave the room and try to figure it out. But, you know, they're seeing a lot of actors. You really don't want to do that, but you're entitled to do that. So you got to make that split decision on 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 the adjustment and i made the adjustment and he was like wow that was amazing that was great and that was it i got the job
1: yeah. also featured our very own elizabeth j carlisle in bosch as well so hi elizabeth What i'd give you a shout out there hi elizabeth
0: <laughs> what's <laughs> up liz
1: <laughs> but um the next time you see him liz just shout aldo mm. so, yeah uh, I, I... And just I wanted to take a little bit of a step away, obviously, in talking about your career, uh, something that is very mutual between yourself and myself. And uh, for myself, I actually have two children with autism and you devote a lot of time into educating and raising awareness for autism spectrum disorder. Yes. So uh, please do tell us a little bit more about that.
3: You know, there's... um... There are challenges that life presents you i think marriage marriage is a was a huge challenge uh, at least my marriage was uh parenting mm, huge yeah. huge huge challenge there's you know because you don't you don't have a handbook there's no it's a you learn on the job right it's on the job training yeah, parenting yeah. pretty pretty much um all right, so my first two children are girls, and you find out you're having a boy, and you get kind of like, you get excited, and you get scared, and, you know, you, you, you don't want to make the mistakes that your father made with you, and, yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, you start thinking, you start fantasizing about the relationship and what it's going to be like when, that, when your son's in the womb. He can't play catch, but you buy him a baseball—you know, a baseball glove and a football. It's first Christmas, even though he he can't throw it yet. You know, you just you just have all these uh, uh, projections. Yeah, and then you start to get the information little by little. You know, my wife breastfed all our children for a year, the first year, and in the first three months, she says to me you know, he doesn't uh, look at me like the other two. I said, yeah, you know, that's fine. You know, they're girls. He's a boy. They're all different. And she's like, no, Dave, he, it's like, he's not looking at me. I said, all right, don't worry about it. You know, it's, we'll we'll go, we'll tell the doctor when we go in for the visit. And, you know, and then he's not hitting any of the milestones, right? Not rolling over during the time period in which babies roll over, he's not getting up on his haunches and not crawling. And um, so at around nine months when we go in for the checkup, you know, we share our concerns with the pediatrician and she says, is he doing this? And we say, no, is he doing this? We say, no, is he doing this? We say, no. And then that look comes across her face where she knows. And she doesn't know how to tell us. But she doesn't have to say a word. And you know that that your whole life is going to change. You know your whole life is going to change in that moment. You know that everything that you had hoped for and everything that you thought.
0: Do you need to take a moment? No. No.
3: And so uh, the process begins of acceptance, powerlessness. You know, you you do everything you can to change it, right? You do, you you, want to know, you want to know, well, what do you mean he doesn't have enough myelin in his brain? Well, how does the brain, how does the brain produce myelin? Well, we don't know. Well, what do you mean you don't know? Is there synthetic myelin? um not that we're aware of I said well why isn't anybody working on this isn't there somebody in the world working on creating if myelin is the problem and he doesn't have enough he only has 10 percent of the myelin of a typical child well why don't we find a way to get him more myelin well we don't the brain is very complicated yeah and uh so you, you you just start you know trying to find ways to to change it yeah and The first four years I was, uh, as my friend, Dave Kirsch likes to say, UTC under the covers for four years. I was, I went into a depression and I could not accept my son's condition. I looked at it as a burden and not a blessing, but I really wasn't looking at it as anything. I was just, I was just going through it. You know, I was trying to process it. Um, and it took four years. Now, whenever we had a birthday, I never invited any of the other autistic children because I did not want to accept the fact that my son had this condition. And if I were to invite everybody from his class, it would just solidify the fact that this is who he is. And I don't want him to be that. Right? I want him to be typical. I want the fantasy. I want the shot at a better relationship between me and my son and me and my father had, I want to, I want to right all those wrongs. And then you come to a point where you realize, okay, it is what it is. You better find a way to make, look at this as a blessing, because if you continue to look at it as a burden, you're going to end up, you know, on some kind of medication or something. Yeah. So, so for the fifth birthday, my wife is, come on, let's invite the kids from his class. I say, You really want to do that? She's like, yeah. I said, what kind of party? She says, a bowling party. I said, you really want to have a bowling party with 20 autistic kids at a bowling alley? She's like, yeah, let's do it. I'm like, yeah, let's do it. Wow. So (laughs) no one took their turn. Everyone was just grabbing a ball when they wanted to. They were throwing balls down the alley, two, three at a time. One kid, (laughs) it was hysterical. One kid is running, Okay, you, so there's 32 lanes, right? He's running from lane 32 to lane one <laughs> this way, and all the other people are trying to bowl, and the mother's chasing him, and then she he's running back. It looks like it looks like uh, Keystone Cops, and I'm sitting there, right? I'm sitting. There. I, I gave up after trying to get everybody to bowl. Like, no, it's your turn. What? Hey, Joey, what Joe? Sit out. Uh, oh, never mind. Hey. And trying to, you know, control it like a normal bowling situation, I just gave up after about five frames. And I just sat there. I just watched it. <laughs> and it's going on. And it's hysterical. And, and uh, I don't know, man. It became really, really challenging. And it became really hard. And it's the thing that broke our marriage. You know, um, 80, 80% of marriages with a special needs uh, child end up in divorce
1: yeah I, I can actually relate and, and I'll, I'll share a bit of a, a story with you obviously you didn't know um, I was married we had uh, two children together and both of them were autistic and wow. we didn't find out at first we had our daughter born first in 2007 mm-hmm. and this was our first kid we, we, we didn't know how to raise a kid we knew absolutely sure. nothing about it there was no warnings or anything like that and, you know, we, we started to kind of suspect, but at the same time, we were like, well, you know, no one's really taught us. Our parents definitely didn't teach us. Right. And we had our son uh, three years later, and he is severely autistic Right. Uh, in a world of his own. But um, right. that's where things got really tough, you know, because at the time I was in film school as well. You know, so I was trying to get my degrees um, and she's trying to cope at home. She's coping with postnatal depression at the same time, you know, and it's hard because there was like no help and we were kind of all on our own. We were just trying to figure out what to do and we ended up separating and I'd kind of gotten used to the whole uh, autism thing straight away Mm
0: -hmm. because
1: it made me realize things about myself when I was younger. So I kind of accepted it very early on. And when the separation came and suddenly the two kids were gone, and it was like my whole life was just gone in one day. And I didn't know how to do anything else. It was a hard road to recovery. And fast forward now, uh, I moved on, met someone else. We have a Mm -hmm. son now who's seven years old and he's got some traits. Mm -hmm. And I realized how much it's made me grow as a person with yeah. autism I've never yeah. lived without it now it became a very kind of rewarding thing now where I just love being around you know the kids that have autism and all of these kind of special needs
3: yeah these relationships you know um, all relationships I believe are for our spiritual growth definitely um, yeah and that manifests itself manifests itself in learning to love more deeply yes uh learn to learn something new to enlighten you in some way or to heal an ancient wound or trauma yeah and uh definitely my relationship my son has taught me how to love more unconditionally you know love more deeply than you know i could have ever have imagined
1: definitely uh, I'm sorry to have uh, kind of lowered the tone there, and no, it makes
3: a... no, it makes for better television, my friend. <laughs>
1: it's a pity this is radio. Oh,
0: oh, <laughs>
3: oh we're not on TV.
0: No, oh, you
3: I only, do I, I only on. do. I only
1: do TV. I only do TV. <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> I mean that's and, and thank you so much for talking about that because it's always great to have someone else who has gone through that. You know, dealing, living with autism journey. You know. And yeah.
3: It's, where it's, Where are your two autistic children now?
1: Uh, they live here in England, but they're kind of on the other side of the country. Um, so we. Do is show. they in a
3: residential program or um, with
1: their mom? Oh no, with their mom. Yeah.
3: Okay.
1: Yes, I guess uh, the question to kind of end up on this section of the show, uh, we know that due self is on the agenda for you, but what mm-hmm. else have we got coming from David Marciano?
3: Uh, Here in the States on March 7th, uh, my episode of The Good Doctor, Mm -hmm. created by our good friend David Shure, will air here in the States.
0: Awesome. So is this going to be a one-off or is it going to be a recurring role? It is a Mm one-off.
3: It is a one-off. So that's happening. I don't know when it'll air across the pond, but um, it will at some point.
1: It always gets to us one way or the other. If we don't have any yeah, spoilers yeah. already.
3: Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, and I guess I, I played the father of an autistic child. How about that?
1: Oh, perfect. Yeah, I know. And we, we know you, David. It's uh, it's not going to be long before you're doing uh, another recurring role soon enough. Let's just hope that uh, they don't let you go on season three and then the show's over.
3: well it it will be their mistake as we know as we've learned yes if if history as history taught us anything it is always the mistake not to continue on with david marciano's character
0: give him the two million (laughs) that's
3: right it's peanuts two million (laughs) is peanuts compared to how much money you're gonna make over time
1: well well, this is why we need now you and tommy hinckley in your own partner (laughs) cop
3: Oh, I wrote it. I wrote it. I, I actually tried to create a show called Ragucci and Brinkley, which was me and Tommy Hinckley. I, 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 and we pitched it to Dick Donner. We pitched it to Dick Donner. He passed.
1: Uh, yeah. Pitch it to Lauren.
3: Yeah, I don't know what's going on with her. We're friends on Facebook, but she never responds to anything I say. I told her I want those scenes from the, I want the turkey scenes, but she hasn't gotten back to me.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm surprised they never showed up on that purely lethal documentary where they showed all of the extra scenes that were shot for the lethal weapon movies. Yeah. And that was really,
3: a- uh, I guess it probably wasn't as good as I thought it was. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, we'll be the judge. If there is a way I will find yeah. it. Maybe I'll give Bill yeah. Daly a call. He was the former uh, Warner Brothers vice president. Let's see if he can. get Okay. Yeah. Give him a
3: call. That. Yeah, he can, he can get it.
1: <laughs> yes. He's probably seen it. But uh, I guess now we've got to move on to uh, mm-hmm. nominate five. Mm. Now's the time to nominate five.
2: Nominate five. Yes, nominate five. But three or four or six or nine. Now's the time to nominate, nominate
1: five. I had no problem actually hitting the button that time, did you, Steve? No, I didn't. No. <laughs> okay, Steve. What's nominate five? Well, nominate five is the part of the show where we
0: invite our guests to nominate the five favourite, well, things. Really, um, usually it's it's some. Sometimes it's related to the world of acting and movie making, and other times it's related to the world of golf. We don't know yet.
1: Oh my god, I love it! Forty episodes in, and you still can't get that speech out okay okay well so with david marciano he is a new jersey boy so we basically asked him who would be his five to nominate as the best talent to come out of new jersey and it's a countdown fashion that we never Mm -hmm. get right so we will start at number five are you ready david Ah,
3: we're gonna put these in order
1: No, why bother?
3: I can't put them in order. I I didn't do that. I didn't put them in an order because it's really been hard. Because if I told you the amount of talent that has come out of New Jersey, it would blow your mind.
1: Oh, no. We can imagine. Okay. We won't do it in an order. We'll just say we'll do it as a countdown, but not an official countdown. All right. Because
3: you have to understand my logic. Okay.
1: So. Oh, no. No, we didn't. So, so, let's say for a number five.
3: Okay, number five, I'm going to have to say David Marciano. I mean, come on.
1: <laughs> uh, Do you know
0: him well?
3: I uh, fair, fair, Fairly well, yeah. yeah, and, and that's very humble of him to say that he's number five.
1: Because... I have a feeling it's just going to be variations of David Marciano <laughs> counting all the way down. So, I'm going to go
3: David Marciano as number five, since we have full, to have a number five.
1: Full agreement. And you are the first New Jersey talent to actually be on the show, so there we go. Oh,
3: all right. Now, who's the greatest American actress of all time?
1: It's got to be Meryl Streep, right?
3: Exactly, and she's from New Jersey, so I'm going to put her as number one.
1: Oh, okay. Okay. Okay? All right, good call.
3: I'm going to put Meryl as number one, just because she is that. Now, we also have Buzz Aldrin. Now, Buzz, yeah, you see, now Buzz has been on the moon. This is true, pretty, yeah. This is pretty. This is pretty big. So, I'm going to throw Buzz in there just because he's been on the moon.
0: Also, because he punched out that guy that was questioning the moon landings, and it's like, come on.
3: Oh, I didn't know that. Good, yeah. He's definitely number yeah. two. Then he's definitely number two. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Someone was heckling him. Some conspiracy theorists were saying, "Oh, you know, the moon landings aren't real," and he punched him. Sweet,
1: <laughs>
3: my man. That's okay.
1: New Jersey for you, definitely. It
3: is. Oh yeah, oh, yeah. We don't take no shit now. There's a lot of great musical talent and, and also has come from New Jersey. So one of the most iconic crooners of all time, which is Frank Sinatra. Right? We also Now we have one of the great musician poets to come out of New Jersey, which is Bruce Springsteen. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And then we have one of the greatest voices ever, which is Whitney Houston. So right now we got Merrill and we got uh Buzz. So now it's. I'm gonna go with Sinatra.
1: Not I'm gonna go Valley. with
3: Sinatra. Frankie's on the list, but no, he sings like a girl. So Frankie. <laughs> I'm sorry. He's from my hometown too. He's from Newark. You know that he's from Newark. Uh, okay. <laughs> All right. Now, I love comedy. I love comedy. All right. Now you know Abbott and Costello are from New Jersey, but I'm not gonna. I'm. I'm not gonna. I mean, they're they're up there, but Jerry Lewis. I'm going to go with Jerry Lewis. Right. Okay. Yeah. Because Jerry Lewis and Dean Martin. I mean, those. That's you know. So, but I, I still got to put Springsteen in there, and I got to put Whitney, and I got to put Nicholson, Jack Nicholson.
0: So the nominate five is rapidly turning into a nominate ten.
3: Is that yes? Yes. Let's keep going, <laughs> shall we? Because <laughs> you got Shaquille O'Neal. You're not going to with Shaquille O'Neal. Okay. <laughs> um I'm not putting that little midget Joe Pesci on him he's not getting on there (laughs) does he not amuse you he doesn't he doesn't (laughs) and we're not not putting Bruce Willis on there because he couldn't act his way out of a paper bag he ain't getting on there
1: you've just made Bill Daley's uh, best friends list awesome Danny DeVito I like Danny DeVito
3: I'll put him in my top 10 um uh philip roth who's a great writer is from uh newark george double r martin um i get the feeling
1: david is suddenly reading these off a list that he's looking Uh, online i think so yeah (laughs) i'm
3: gonna go with martha stewart i'm gonna go martha stewart's got to be in my top 10 for sure uh lauren hill she's great uh travolta's great
0: nominate 15 Um, yeah
3: kirsten dunce you can't go kirsten dunce a jersey girl i mean come on and one of the greatest baseball players mike trout of our day peter dinklage come on peter dinklage
0: all right Uh, let's see how many more do i get I (laughs) i think the last time we had this many go over to i think it was nominate seven that it ended up with and that was from bill daly
3: all right. And then I'll end with this. I'll end with this. Okay. I'll end with these two. I'll end with Bill Maher.
1: Mm-hmm. Good choice.
3: And, and Paul Simon. Okay. And I will say, have you seen the TV show uh, Snoop and Martha?
0: No, no, not yet. Okay.
3: Okay. 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 Guys, please do me a favor. <laughs> it is a cooking show.
0: Oh, Snoop Dogg and Martha Stewart, yeah, yeah. For some reason, I was picturing like a detective show or something.
3: You gotta watch it. You gotta fucking watch it. It's on. It's one of my favorite TV shows of all time. Whichever executive came up with this idea was brilliant, brilliant,
1: <laughs> and also probably high. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Well, that's a great nominate forty. <laughs> <laughs> Well, look,
3: you pick, the, you pick the state, I'm sorry, you pick the state in which you can't just pick five. Look at, that, look at that list of talent that I just rattled off.
1: I have learned my lesson.
3: And are you ready for this? <laughs> Michael Douglas is from New Jersey. Tom Cruise is from New Jersey. I mean, it's crazy. Saul Zance is from New Jersey. The great producer, Saul Zance. It's just, uh, it goes on and on and on and on. Wow. Just never ends.
1: <laughs> well, unfortunately, we have to on that point. But that is a great nominate five. I guess you just got to kind of put them names in the box, Steve.
2: What's in the box? What's in the box?
1: What's in the box? What's in the box? So, Steve, what's in the box? Well, what's in
0: the box is the part of the program where Andy tries to improve my movie education by, well, just improving my movie education. He's going to put his hand into a box and going to pull out the name of a film which is certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. If I have seen it, then we keep pulling out names of movies until we find one that I haven't seen. And then I go away and watch it the day before we record our next episode.
3: Did I mention Ed (laughs) Harris?
1: No. It, by any chance is um is Bob Dylan from New Jersey?
3: No, sir, he is not.
1: Oh, well that's a shame because I pulled a movie out of the box for Steve and mm-hmm. it is a movie called I'm Not There. Oh, this is the one where loads of people play Bob Dylan, isn't it? Yes, like Kate Blanchett and Heath Ledger and mm, Christian. Wow. Have wow. you seen that movie, David? No. No, it's, I want to say it's Todd Phillips. I'm not sure. Oh. It might be. but um,
3: Is essentially... Todd from New Jersey? Isn't Todd from New Jersey? <laughs>
1: no. I need to look this
0: up. I bet he is. <laughs> so basically what you're saying is that the entirety of Hollywood needs to just move back home to New Jersey.
3: Yes, by the way, that's where the first film was made, okay? Menlo <laughs> Park. Look it up. Why don't you look that up, okay? The first film ever made was made in New Jersey.
1: No, actually, it was a, it's a Todd Haynes movie. Uh, and Todd Haynes was born in Los Angeles. So he's obviously not as talented as so, Todd, some people think. But Todd
3: Phillips, I think, is New Jersey, but I could be wrong.
1: But uh, that is your movie for next week that you have to go and watch now, Steve. And uh, let us know next week what you thought about it. Yes, sir. Uh, David. Um, sir. What an amazing episode. You've been an absolutely amazing guest. Yeah. Um, you know, Everything about what the show is about—it's just coming on, being yourself, having some fun, enjoying yourself—and we hope you've enjoyed yourself.
3: I really have. Thank you so much. Um, it's been a—it's been a pleasure. And um yeah, uh, keep doing what you guys are doing. It's great.
1: Thank no. you, man. Thank you. And um, hopefully, we're going to have you back soon when you can uh, let us know more about what's going on with you yourself. Mm.
3: I think that's a good idea. Yeah, that's a good idea. As soon as I know something, I don't know what's going on. They. I'm the only American involved in this show at this stage, as I was at the original. So they're probably going to squeeze me out <laughs> <laughs> at some point.
1: Yeah, Callum's number on standby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's going to be a
3: that's going to be a great move. Yeah, you know what? Let's do the reboot with uh, Paul and uh, Callum. Forget Dave Marciano because he's American. <laughs> it's been a pleasure, really. It has continued success with your show, and yeah, yeah please. Thank you very much. Uh, look me up anytime
0: yeah thank you very much for coming on it has been really really well it's been fantastic to have you enjoy the rest of your day and this is a bit of the show where Andy should be saying goodbye but with about 20 seconds to go his internet went down apparently there's a major outage so with that in mind I shall say goodbye from him and it's a goodbye from me and we'll see you next time on Pollywood bye (laughs) Thank you.